We made this. Welcome to You Have Been Watching, a podcast devoted to looking in-depth into the fascinating curiosity that is the British television sitcom, part of the We Made This podcast network. I'm your host, Tony Black, and I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Turnbull, as ever. And in this episode, we're going to break a little bit from our format, which has been looking at particular shows so far uh, at once at a time. And we're going to have more of a general conversation about our own personal histories with the British sitcom British comedy and our tastes in general along this subject because I suppose you know we've done three main episodes now Rob plus our little introduction and I think it felt like at the time that we could maybe put out there a little bit more of a general chat about us and about what we like you know you've heard us talk about sitcoms now various different ones just felt like a good time maybe to just give everyone a little bit more of a background on why we're kind of doing this in a way, even more than the introduction was, I suppose. Yeah, I think it it feels like we've hit a point now where we've we've we can take that moment to say, okay, well, why are we talking about sitcom? You know, why why do we feel so passionately about it? Uh, and uh, you know, and people might actually want to to know a little bit more about. Uh, you know, in the year of, of 87, when I was a young child, I remember gazing up at the large wooden box television set. You know, maybe people are ready for yeah. that. A little yeah. bit of narrative. I think it needs to be done in a very dramatic Olivier-style way, you know, as you described there. You know, that was a good, oh, absolutely, yes. That, that was a good beginning. <laughs> and, we, and we need it from, like, day dot, you know. <laughs> from On the third day of my life... I looked at a television screen. (laughs) Um, I knew then that my future lay in situation comedy. (laughs) As I sat there watching Duty Free with Keith Barron and Gwen Taylor, (laughs) I knew... No, well, that that leads us like nicely. Do you reckon anyone remembers Duty Free now except you and I? I do wonder as I say that. Oh, my God. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think there are there are six. I mean, just like jumping straight into it. I think I think the answer is is probably uh, yes. There are a few people who probably remember it, but they also probably um, voted the wrong way in the referendum. So you know. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Yeah, yeah. Possibly, yeah, possibly. And, and you know... I'm not going to say what the wrong way was, obviously. Let's just <laughs> no, leave that one out there. Listeners, I think you can make your minds up on that one. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, I think anyone, like, under maybe 40, like, and I'm just under 40, 39, will probably struggle to remember that show. But And, and that's the thing. When we grew up, we're both roughly around the same age. There's a couple of years between it. And so we both grew up at the same kind of era with the same kind of, of thing. So... What was the first sitcom you ever remember watching? And when roughly was it then? I, you know, I'm, it's, it's, I'm going to give such an awful answer to this. Uh, I can't really remember. But that's mm. in part because I, I watched quite a lot of them from, from a relatively early age. So there are some sitcoms that, that really stick in my mind 
from when I was younger. So, um, Dear John, that's one that sticks in my mind. I really remember Dear John. Um, what, which was I think was, what was that one? So that was, uh, that was a, a John Sullivan um, oh. sitcom. And it was about a man who basically this, this guy, um, at, you know, hence the... Uh, Dear John, you know, the Dear John letter yeah, idea yeah. that, you know, um, and it was this guy in the first episode, he, um, uh, he has, his wife has left him, um, his wife has left him and he doesn't know what to do and he's disparate and he has to move out and live in horrible digs uh, and so he joins uh, a dating agency. Right. And the dating agency just has lots of weird, quirky people in it. And uh, it's like um, Ralph Bates is the Dear John character. So there's this very sort of hang dog, kind of slightly miserable. Uh, Belinda Lang was his... Um, ah, yeah. Uh, his his wife who leaves him and stuff. From 2.4 Children. So she has sitcom chops herself. Yeah, yeah. She So it must have been, must have been uh, what's his face that she got together with? And and second thoughts actually weirdly yeah second thoughts oh yeah uh, although that's a, that's a bit that's that quite a bit later yeah uh, but interesting that was that was a radio sitcom and I used to listen to it on the radio in the in the late eighties yeah and then got really excited when it moved to TV <laughs> but it is so it's stuff it's stuff like it's stuff like that so it's like dear John um, just good friends also yeah. another. John, I've just realised these John are all Sullivan. John Sullivan that I'm yeah. talking. Yeah, John Sullivan's uh, romantic it's, comedy sort of vein as well. It's very different. Yeah, not yeah. not the same as yeah, Only just, Fools or in many ways, you know. No, 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 not really. It's well, I think it's. Fa- I mean, we, I'm sure we will do not just not just Only Fools. I'm sure we'll do John Sullivan. Yeah, a, an episode at one point because he, I think his career is just it was just fascinating, mm. fascinating. And we've talked um, about doing romantic comedy as well, like generally. Yeah, so. absolutely, absolutely. Which yeah. he will he will feature quite heavily in. Mm, mm. But yeah, Citizen Smith, another one of his. Yeah. that I watched when I was a kid. I think, yeah, it's 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 super vague. I can't really say for sure. There are lots of these like really old sitcoms. So I was like watching sitcoms a lot when I was when I was quite little, like too too young to sort of understand them, I suppose. Not you know properly. So a lot of the sitcoms I I watched were sitcoms from just before I was born. So a lot of the uh, you know, to the man of born and this kind of stuff. Sitcoms that had started in the very, very late seventies and ran into the early mid eighties. And I probably was getting into sitcoms in the early to mid eighties. It's like you say, I'm a couple of years older than you, and I, well, without without wanting to bore with my life story on this one, I think I've I've, I've touched on this before briefly. I think in another episode. So I was um, home educated. Uh, and so growing up when I was younger, I don't know if anyone will remember this, but BBC Two and Channel Four, they used to show um, schools educational programmes in the morning. So from about nine in the morning till till half eleven midday, both those channels would show um, educational schools programmes. And so being home ed, my sisters and I, we would watch a lot of these programmes in the morning. And they had, you know, like like you would send off for like packs and you sit and do, you know, work and stuff along with them. Now, depending what day, what shows were on and what we were learning about on any particular day, our day of, of watching these programmes would end. We'd sort of like flip between BBC Two and Channel Four and we would end on Channel Four or BBC Two, depending what show it was. 
And then we, we would usually watch what came on afterwards, like whatever entertainment came on afterwards. Channel 4 was almost always an old movie, like an Ealing comedy or a 1940s war drama. Mm. <laughs> and then BBC 2 would quite often midday into early afternoon show old sitcoms mm. and this is this is before this is before you know uk gold and all that yeah. kind of stuff um so I, I guess in a way a lot of my early exposure to sitcoms was as a as a younger kid i'd just been watching all these maths french whatever programs and then <laughs> some days it would roll straight into an old episode of to the manor board yeah uh and then maybe you know just good friends and mm. and and so I guess that was that's my sort of strongest memory of these kind of like slightly old sitcoms on an, an early afternoon in midweek. That's a very roundabout way of saying I can't quite remember. <laughs> well, I mean, it, to be fair, I, I, nor can I pin down an exact first one, but I can remember generally the kind of things I was watching. So at the time, my parents were together. My parents divorced like 25 years ago, but for my childhood, they were together and they used to watch quite a lot of ITV for their sins. But ITV did have quite a lot of good comedies, decent comedies back then, as well as the BBC. So I remember they, I remember watching a lot of what they watched. So they would watch stuff like Fresh or French Fields with yes, Julie, yes. Julie McKenzie and Tom Rogers, which which very safe fair. But it all—it always made me laugh, even if I didn't get. I mean, at that age, you don't get all the jokes, do you? But it's—it's it's very safe no. stuff. Bizarrely, I really always liked After Henry, which was Prunella Scales. Oh God, yeah, After Henry. Prunella Scales and Joan Sanderson, and I think maybe it was because I did watch Faulty Towers, which obviously we talked about a few episodes ago at an, at an early age, and so maybe at seeing both of them in Faulty Towers was a bit of an association as well but I really I really like that that show that was it's a bit lost now and it's very gentle stuff it was about a widowed woman and her battle axe of a mother or mother-in-law I can't quite remember which and it was very gentle so I tend to like a lot of those gentle things and my mum used to watch um The Good Life as well that was on constantly that was obviously BBC but I mean The Good Life was again fairly gentle but that was actually quite witty and a bit Naughty deep down as well. Like quite, you know, yeah, it had a bit of, yeah. uh, <laughs> bit of cheeky, sexy Definitely. stuff in, in its DNA. But then also, and this isn't strictly a comedy, a, a, a comedy or definitely a sitcom. But one of the earliest shows I remember, and one, and I might have mentioned this before, and one I absolutely adore to this day, was Avida Saint Pet, because that was on, uh, you know, early early to mid eighties. So I was very very young. And it was always the second series where they end up in Spain. And that was around 1986. So I would have been about four or five. And I was way too young to be watching it, really, because that show's got a lot of near-the-knuckle gags, even today. Some of that stuff is quite naughty. But So I was too young, and I didn't get it all. But I just I found Jimmy Nail, in particular, hilarious. So even though I didn't, even though I didn't get everything he was saying, and that stuck with me. So I think it was quite a combination of quite safe stuff that my parents was were watching with the odd little bit of maybe something that I shouldn't have been seeing at that age. But but they imprint on you, don't they? And it's interesting how the how things that parents watch, you end up watching by osmosis as well when you're that age. Well, obviously, really, because you're watching at that as well. This was the 80s and the early 90s. Everyone's in the one room with one TV 
watching the same thing then. It's not like today where you've got one person on a phone in a bedroom and one person on a, you know, whatever. It, everyone was just in the living room, weren't they then? So you watch the same thing. Well, this is, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to sound horrendous here. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, I'm so sorry about this, folks, but, uh, I actually had my own television oh. as, a, as a child. No, I did. Um, I did, but later on. I did, but <laughs> later into the 90s. So, yeah, very, very privileged, Rob, in, in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> no, sorry, but you're, but, but, you're, but you're right. Like, the majority the majority of the TV watching was actually done, like, like you know, I, I'm... You know, I'm joking, obviously. Uh, well, I'm not joking. We were very rich. I had a television. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we... Like, techni- technically... There wasn't a technical reason for it that, that you know, we had the facility um, <laughs> to watch television separately, but we didn't because it was it was a social, you know. And I think I think even for, for people that may have been genuinely rich and had a TV in every room, there was a social element to it. You sat and watched TV together. That was how we watched television, particularly for comedies as well. It was a commu- oh, communal yeah. thing. Definitely. You know, you would watch and laugh together. For a lot of this stuff, was that one of the reasons you sort of were drawn to this kind of format because of the of that communal aspect or the fact that it was it was a family endeavor? What do you think it was that really made you love the sitcom at that age? It's really tricky, you know, because it's like we all we all like different sitcoms for different reasons, you know, like on on an individual basis. My personal preference is is probably more of the the slightly i don't want to say the surreal but the slightly uh, edgier uh more creative sitcoms and actually that was that was my parents preference so so i used to watch all these these old maybe not not quite the flip side of your parents but you know you're talking about kind of like the safe sitcoms and the friendly the easygoing sitcoms my parents weren't particularly into those sitcoms my parents preferred the the sort of the 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 alternative comedy sitcoms the edgier sitcoms if you can call it edgy I hate edgy that's a terrible word but they they preferred the slightly um you know the slightly more Surrealist. yeah close to the knuckle stuff yeah and so I used to watch I used to watch those with my parents far more than I watched the friendly jolly safe ones and I think that for me there was definitely this sense of connection with my parents so if you sit down and you watch a you watch a comedy um a good sitcom can get laughs from you know multi-generations you know it's like obviously some sitcoms are borderline family sitcoms you know keeping up appearances that's you know that's more or less a family sitcom you can watch that with granny you can watch that with your little niece and nephew and so that's going to get you know people laughing at various different things the kids laugh at someone falling over the parents laugh at a suggestion of an illicit affair and all that kind of thing and I think for me sitting and watching sitcoms especially say I don't know like Blackadder that kind of thing sitting and watching those with my parents those sitcoms which are a little bit a little bit clever, maybe a little bit naughty, maybe have a sort of an edge of sophistication. It was a real, without sounding cheesy, it was like a bonding experience for me. And I used to actually really like the moments of like my parents guffawing with laughter and me not understanding what a joke was and and then them kind of explaining it to me. And I don't just mean sort of explaining the the sort of the ABCs of it. If it is like a, a Blackadder, a sort of a historically based comedy, my parents then sitting and explaining when I'm like six, seven years old. It's like, oh, well, 
one of Shakespeare's plays is about these characters and they do this and they do that and there are these three witches and so when they're doing that it's making fun of the three witches and I'm like oh okay I get yeah. it and then I go off and I you know read read Macbeth or, or whatever so it was a real bonding thing for me sitcoms and I think sitcoms in a way that a lot of other entertainments don't necessarily do is that they can really kind of like uh, appeal to to everyone in the room yeah because you find different things to laugh at don't you and to yeah exactly and to take from them I don't really remember having those kind of conversations with my parents about stuff like that I, I, I remember watching that kind of thing when I was a kid on the downstairs television but yeah when I got into teenage years mid 90s ish I, I had my own tv upstairs and by then we had we had cable so we had UK gold and UK gold was massive to my childhood it was at that point it was in the 90s it was end of the 90s it was UK gold and VH1 which were on just rotation on in my on my television just constantly <laughs> uh, when I wasn't playing a video of, of probably something like Star Trek or, or the X-Files or something I was watching comedies you know that, and that, that's the thing it was I I do I did watch a lot of drama you know, it's funny because we've we made this. We've got we've got a show called Right in the Childhood, which is all about uh, childhood shows that you love and you remember. And there's a a guy who's roughly my age, maybe slightly older, doing the stuff that we grew up with. And then there's a, a younger guy doing the stuff that he grew up with. And honestly, I don't remember watching many childhood shows. You know, that that that's <laughs> lots of the ones that he's talking about that were from the eighties. I I never watched that because I was watching sitcoms or I was watching dramas and quite often American dramas as well so I, I kind of think that I've got a bit of a blind spot for kids shows not all of them but some of them because I was more interested in watching old repeats of Only Fools and Horses on UK Gold or uh, uh, and that that is probably where I saw stuff for the first time that was a little bit cleverer it would have been where I saw things like One Foot in the Grave or Blackadder as well but I didn't really have those interactions with my parents where we discussed that stuff it's the sort of thing I'd love to have if I'm lucky enough to have a child one day I'd love to do with a child and sit them down watching sitcoms of yore and have and talk about them definitely because I think that's a lovely experience you had there where you were able to go off and look at things after you'd spoken about something in Blackadder or whatever with your parents that's really nice I mean I'm kind of, you know I'm kind of lucky and it's like and and I won't so you know I won't kind of like harp on about the the home ed thing but obviously that that created a very different like dynamic and a very different daily schedule as well so for my sisters and I I think that our tv watching was was obviously obviously far more spread out because we didn't have that sort of the regular the the sort of proverbial nine to five work schedule you know it wasn't kind of like up and out of the house go to school come back at a certain time so uh, kind of similar to you in 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 the sort of the blind spot on the kids tv although we did watch a certain amount of kids tv because we were kids we never had that that need for um release you know we weren't getting home at like half three four o'clock whatever it was and then just like oh i've been at school all day so i'm gonna watch the kids tv we we never had that sort of need of release so actually kids tv would start and we'd be doing something else we might be doing a project or just reading or playing or, or whatever it might be so our our watching habits were, were were not influenced by that schedule 
and so I think there was we yeah things were sort of a bit spread out for us and we were able to sort of discover things because we never we never had UK gold we had we had we had two tellies but no satellite <laughs> um, but... yeah I'm going to take you on the posh there because because at, yeah. at that time having a satellite dish in your garden was a status thing like my my dad had one it was ridiculous it was ridiculous it was on this massive metal pole right in the back garden huge bloody thing and massive horrible absolute fucking eyesore i mean it's much better these days where you've got a little box on your on your house or whatever it was horrible back then it was a gross thing right next to a tree and it was just like ugh. but yeah he he had he was able to flick through this this you know this box that was like you know primitive compared to what you've got now but you know and it was um I mean, my favourite thing when I wasn't watching sitcoms was trying to f- flick through to find the mucky German channel that was on. And it was always... Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At like two in the afternoon, you'd find this, you know, German woman with her boobs out going, Gasta, you know, that kind of thing. It was like, brilliant. <laughs> oh, the joys of being a teenage boy in the 90s. But, um, yeah, so like it was, it was a bit of um, having something like UK Gold in a way, you know, it, having cable in that way, satellite was a luxury in some senses. So, and it, and it was, and it, people take, you know, things like all this, the cable, satellite channels now for granted, cable channels now for granted. But yeah, that, it, it, to be able to have all of those sitcoms there, you know, are, are on rotation. I mean, it was a goldmine to discover stuff, really. Not, not that I necessarily watched all of the old stuff all the time. I didn't necessarily watch all of Porridge or I didn't necessarily watch all of Hancock, say, but it was on. So it was, I would see episodes and I'd see things. And I think it was a massive, like, you know, influence in many ways to hook you into that, all those different styles of comedy. Yeah, I think definitely. And because it's, it's, it's a concentrated, it's a concentrated feed as well. It's like, it's not, you know, it's like, like I say, whether it was down to my schedule or whether it was down to my my parents having an interesting in com- you know interesting comedy anyway, I was able to find and look for and you know find comedy shows and experience lots of different comedy shows, depending where they were. So you know, I I could watch a repeat of Dear John on a Thursday afternoon, and then I was allowed to stay up and watch Blackadder on a Friday evening. But for something like UK Gold. You've got you've got everything there. You, you you get up in the morning, you turn UK Gold on, and it's just a constant stream of all the different sitcoms, basically. And because they have to fill that time, so you will get Just Good Friends, you mm. will get uh, One Foot in the Grave, you'll get Heidi High, yes. you get everything, basically everything in a stream. So you can just sit there and watch it for a week. And then after a week, you go, you know what? I'm not going to watch that one anymore, but I am going to watch that one. And so it's it's an amazing cut, almost like a bombardment yeah. of what's available. Yeah, Heidi High was definitely one that was on all the time as a kid. I used to, I loved Heidi High. That was that was on all. That was on a lot. As was Alo Alo as well. And I know we're going to do an episode where we're talking about some of these in the not too distant future. I think, but you know, they they were they were always on. They were those '80s, quite camp and cheeky sort of seaside postcard sort of sitcoms yes. but they were they were they were they were just about okay enough for kids to watch you know I, I, in that era I mean in this day and age I'm not sure they would be in a way I don't know if a lot of parents would actually go for it in the same way with the innuendo the level of innuendo but back then it was fine I think our I think our generation were a generation of watching completely inappropriate <laughs> things at completely inappropriate ages 
Well, yeah. That's just how it, it was. was. You know, if it wasn't this, it was sneaking off to try and watch like Child's Play 3 when you're like 10 years old. Do you know that kind of thing? <laughs> um, yeah, trying to find horror movies. But that was, that was admittedly part of the fun of it. And it was a bit different before the age of the internet. It was different. It was different in that it, it almost wasn't as risky in a way. You know, I don't think you had necessarily a whole generation of really damaged people grow up because they were watching Hello, Hello or they were sneaking off to watch a horror film as much as they were, they were at times inappropriate for the age group. I don't think those kind of comedies, because I mean, well, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It, when we look at it in terms of the era of when we grew up, in terms of sitcoms and comedies, was it at a point, you know, the eighties and the nineties, was it at a point where sitcom was evolving into something else? Because I, I sometimes think, you know, you have all, you have some of those sitcoms that are quite innuendo based. More in the 80s. But then you've also got like Men Behaving Badly, which was a massive sensation in the 90s. And that was full of that. That was full of really kind of, you know, sex jokes, naughty jokes. You've got stuff like Game On in the 90s as well, which I really liked when I was a teenager. Because every teenage boy I think I ever knew fancied Samantha Janus in that show. And, you know, she was. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, completely. So, like... You had you have those kind of shows as well, but it felt like things were starting to change a little bit from when maybe our parents grew up watching the 60s, 70s stuff that definitely influenced those things. But do you feel like we, we grew up in an age of changing sitcom in many ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for us... And we're talking... We're really talking about the 90s here, like the... the yeah. Maybe a push the very late 80s, but mostly kind of like the big chunk of the 90s. I think that was the last, the last great wave of studio sitcom. And it was like, and it was the last big evolution of studio sitcom before we shifted to the kind of the, the single camera um, you know, moving out of a studio kind of kind of format which is which is more favored today. And I think it's, and again, like um, we'll probably do a, a, an episode focused on this more, the kind of the, the history and the evolution of, of sitcom. But I think definitely you can see the steps and it's kind of like, I, I think from about, from around the mid 60s up until almost, almost the mid 80s, things were kind of the same thing. You know, the sort of, the, mm. there was a, there was a general format of a, a safe, reliable sitcom was a kind of a, a living room with a family and, you know, they're usually a dad and a mum and there might be some teenage kids. And and that was kind of like it, you know, sort of like like the bless this house kind of template. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously there were exceptions to the rule and there were sitcoms that kind of like skewered that idea. But the fundamental sitcom sort of like baseline was that kind of bless this house and that kind of like went on, you know, you had like Terry and June and yeah. you know, stuff like that came from, you know, George and I mean, obviously George and Mildred to spin George and Mildred. Like, yeah, but like George, George and Mildred. I love George and Mildred. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like George and Mildred more than Man About the House. Well, I, I had um, no idea for years that George and Mildred was a spin off to Man About the House. I had no idea. Oh, about God. That. Yeah. Until suddenly. Well, Man I went, About the House no was. Yeah. Uh, George and Mildred is to Man About the House what Frasier is to Cheers, in my opinion. <laughs> 
That's amazing. Yeah. No, it is. No, it is. Because Georgia Mildred was absolutely better. Like, from what I... I haven't seen all of Man About the House, or, or all of Georgia Mildred, actually. I've seen more of Georgia Mildred. But definitely, it was absolutely the better show. And, and yeah, but they were they were very much at the, at the, at the ending, or it finished at the point where I, I was being born. And maybe... Yeah. I don't know about you, maybe as well. I think they were... They were stuff then that... I don't know if they were quite on as hard rotation repeat wise as more of the modern stuff then in a way like only falls and that kind of stuff. It's hard to say. I mean, like again, it's like I'm I'm a I'm a couple of years older than you, which in the grand scheme of things is not a big deal, but actually for those uh, for the early 80s the, the sort of the two or three years between us can make quite a big difference. So when you yeah. were 3, yeah. I was 6. So yeah. it's it's hard it's hard to say because I don't I don't properly remember it. But there are some shows like that, like George and Mildred, which maybe when I was old enough to be watching them, they were on a pretty heavy. You know, they were probably getting repeated fairly heavily. By the time you were old enough to remember them, maybe they'd fallen out of favour a little bit. Yeah, more. maybe. Uh, it's hard to maybe. say, but that that couple of years just between us could could be it could be all the difference. No, no, no. It is because uh, I I have this I have this exact same thing with my wife because I'm five years older than my wife. Um, not that anyone would guess this. My wife is like 15 years older mentally than me, but like <laughs> I, I am biologically five years older. Um, and yeah, there's lots of reference points, whether it's comedy or drama. She doesn't get like that. I will get, and it, and it, and I think, oh, hang on, we were born. You were born in like 1987. How how do? You, but actually, no, it does because a lot of her reference points are more noughties than the 90s. And so it does. It's surprising how much even a few years. You're absolutely right. Can make a big difference with this kind of stuff. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think if we think of like around about five years old is probably when you sort of properly start to you know you can properly remember things. You're probably taking things in properly from maybe five ish. Then yeah, actually a couple of years can make a huge difference to you know me being five, you being two, three or four, whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, yeah. But without without dwelling on that, I I think that. Yeah, what was I saying? So there's that kind of there was that long period from from the mid '60s to the early mid '80s where mm. I think sitcoms were fairly fairly kind of standard fare. But then you would get the occasional subversive sitcom like Butterflies, which was yeah. the it was the sort of the housewife, the adult children, but you throw in this concept of of an illicit affair. I think. I mean, to be honest, Carla Lane is probably responsible for a lot of them, but there was a little trend in the early mid '80s, I think, for these kind of almost adultery-based sitcoms. Like there were lots of really popular sitcoms about slightly middle-aged women yeah. thinking about cheating on their husbands because they were fed up with their like with their um, life and surrounding. Which is an interesting. There was like a little, no, yeah. and also stuff like um, May to uh, May to December. May to December, I May loved to, that. Yeah, I loved that show. That yeah, was a great April, show. April to January, that that yeah. brilliant sitcom. <laughs> uh, well, that was that was because it was it what it did have that like slightly dramatic aspect to it in a way. It had it did it did yeah a little bit more to it and and stuff like ever decreasing circles as well was along that oh, kind of vein. Yes, and these were all sort of like you're right mid sort of eighties kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, that's a good. That's something we should definitely look at at some point because that's true. Definitely there was that trend. Of, well, I suspect there's probably it's there's probably some something. Yeah, we should definitely look into it properly. There's probably something going on about the the writers and the 
the prominence of the writers and the age of the prominent writers. You probably find that these yeah. people that during the, you know, well, Carla Lane, she was a very young writer on Bless This House in what, late 60s, early right. 70s. Yeah. By the time she's getting her own show, like 15 years well, later, well, she she's did a middle aged woman. Didn't she as well? The a- well exactly, yeah, the did the Live of Birds. And, um, um, and Bread, I mean, Bread was her, was I think the best one she did. Bread, I love Bread. Uh, you know what? I, I was never a fan of Bread. I, I always no? preferred Butterflies. Yeah, Bread. Bread wow. didn't do it for me. But again, I'm sure we'll talk about Carla Lane. Uh, well, we should. Uh, <laughs> actually, no, actually, we should. Because Butterflies, actually, is one I should watch again. Because I never really got it when I was younger. And I suspect Butterflies was a little bit ahead of its time in some way. So I think it was. I think it yeah. was, yeah. I should do. I should go back to that. But no, yeah, you put right. it on the list. Yeah, put it on the list. The Evergrade list. I love the fact that when we have a conversation, <laughs> we're like, we'll do an episode on that. We'll do an episode on that. Do, do an episode on that one. Do that it one, yeah. It is an embarrassment of riches, though, this stuff. Like, there is so much There's there. There's so many. Like so many sitcoms, but so many ideas within these sitcoms that I think drew us into what they were. Yeah, and I think that you know British sitcom, and and I'm not just blandly talking, you know, American sitcom versus UK sitcom because there's amazing American sitcoms, but British sitcom, I think that we have always, weirdly, always been trying to to break the mold. The mold was was set up in the kind of, you know, I guess the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, with you know the sort of the birth of, of sitcom back in the fifties, and almost instantly in this country, we we're trying to subvert it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you look at even like the Lightly Lads. Yeah, like the you know the Lightly Lads. I mean, that's quite. That's kind of like oh, we take the sitcom format, but instead it's going to be about two young working class lads in the north that have, you know, don't know what to do with their lives, and it's mm-hmm. like, okay, so you're already subverting that, and then yeah. it's you know, yeah, butterflies, you know. April to February, <laughs> all these <laughs> sitcoms come. So there's Loads. an awful lot of that going on, and I think to after this huge long spiral to kind of like come back to what we were saying about the period that we were watching them, or at least let's say our teenage period, probably the most influential time in terms of comedy for us. I think that there was this sort of it was the last great hurrah of the studio sitcom because. You had the kind of, yeah, Heidi High and, and those kind of shows, which very, very comfortably took you into uh, took you into the, the mid-80s. And they were great sitcoms, but, you know, they were very, very sitcom-y in that sense. And then all of a sudden, the, the end of the 80s, uh, the beginning of the 90s, you get stuff like, you get, st- well, even stuff like Waiting for God. Waiting for God, which on the surface looks like a very safe, comfortable sitcom, but it's just a little bit subversive. Yeah. Just a little bit, uh, you know, this idea of, of old people being outrageous. And, you know, and it's 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 very tame by today's standards, but it was just a bit cheeky. Yeah. And then you've got One Foot in the Grave, which, of course, is one of the, the darkest, most sinister dramas ever put to screen. Uh, you know, it became like this massive sitcom. And, uh, yeah, Men Behaving Badly, again, it's this thing of, you know, we think about a lower low as being like cheeky, you know, cheeky comedy and lots of, you know, references to boobies and stuff. And you look at Men Behaving Badly and it's like, oh, yeah, these silly men and they're all talking about Kylie and boobs (laughs) and pizza and stuff. But again, Men Behaving Badly had a a kind of a subversive sort of um, almost postmodern in a way. Yeah. Well, it, well, it was um, about how pathetic they were, really. 
I mean that exactly. It, yeah, it was it, kind of it was know, taking them down. It was. It was. It was. It was. There were frequent scenes in that where the women would be like, "They're just a pair of idiots," like you know, and and but the but the charm of those performances made them funny and and ended up made made you end up rooting for them even when they did awful things like cheat on each other's girlfriends and all this kind of quite loose behavior that in the 90s was was more apparent in a lot of these sitcoms you know and you would see uh, it almost yeah that postmodern sort of deconstruction of a lot of this stuff and that was obviously when we were we we, we were teenagers grown into adults you know at that point yeah. that's where sitcom was was starting to to reach that point before, as you say, the change, the big change, the particular change point from when the studio sitcom sort of went away. The but event. No, yeah, 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 exactly. So what, in terms of the sitcoms we, we were watching then, what was it that drew you in? Like, what kind of things did, when you saw a sitcom and you started to fall in love with it, what was it that you fell for? Was it the, was it character-based? Was it gags? Was it physical comedy or intellectual kind of comedy what really is your like sitcom g-spot if you like <laughs> basically well uh oh oh cheeky um <laughs> oh <laughs> there we go it's that it's like i'm free anything like that oh my god no. yeah yeah <laughs> i mean with without saying the most obvious and trite thing that that there are always exceptions to the rule and like certain sitcoms that you wouldn't think are my thing I actually really like uh, yada 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 but I I generally character and wit I I don't dislike physical comedy but physical comedy needs to be backed up with some character and some wit and also like I like clever comedy but I don't mean clever as in as in witty and obeyed. I mean, like, structurally clever. So, yeah. like, Mr. Bean. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bean, on the surface of it, you know, looks very silly and it's sort of slapstick, but it's incredibly sophisticated, the way that it's constructed. Um, and, uh, you know, One Foot in the Grave, the same. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I think... Absolutely. I think One Foot in the Grave is so sophisticated, the way yeah. it's constructed. But, oh, like, generally speaking, I think I do kind of like the stuff, which is, which is slightly subversive to the format mm. it's like I, I i love the the safe and the easy stuff i, I you know I, I enjoy the kind of keeping up appearances <laughs> and the you know the, the those kind of like you know easy safe kind of shows i enjoy uh but what i what i love actually are shows that utilize the format and this for me this goes for everything like like you know dramas films anything like that so sitcoms that are based in a house with a mum and a dad and a sofa, it's like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And they can be very funny and well-performed. But anything that kind of like steps out of that and creates its own world. So sitcoms that really create their own world, that's my kind of G-spot. And that can be anything from, from Dad's Army, because obviously mm. that's, that's an historical setting. Yeah. And it creates this entire historical setting for us. The same with with Heidi High, Blackadder, Red Dwarf, even even One Foot in the Grave. Although that that you know looks like a contemporary living room. Theory. I mean, think about how sophisticated that set is as well. Mm, it's like mm. the angles that the set is shot at. You feel kind of wedged into a house. There are lots of. It's such an it, it, such an in depth set. Yeah. It's not just like, you know, living room straight into kitchen, straight into garden. It's like it's a really thorough 
thorough set. Mm. I basically I believe that world. So sitcoms that create a world, I I love that. I love that. And so although I do, you know, really enjoy uh, Men Behaving Badly, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy Red Dwarf more because it's created this entire world and this entire set of rules for me. So that's, I guess that's kind of my, you know, it's the same, like I was saying about, you know, I'm less of a fan of bread, which is basically just people in, in rooms. But I really like Butterflies because it's, in, it's incredibly well written characters superbly performed like an absolute like apex cast mm. you really need to go back and like watch them yeah, it. it's an absolutely fantastic cast but again it's subversive it's it's playing around with with the format of sitcoms so yeah i, I kind of like those those uh the real kind of like world building mm. stuff that's my kind of my soft spot if you like yeah for sitcom. Yeah. But hardcore comes down to, yeah, characters, you know. A good example for me is um, Open All Hours. I don't think it's a particularly well-written sitcom, but the actors and the performances elevate it to, you know, A-list for me. Um, and it's the characterization and the performance in, in that, that that, like, really lifts it for me. Uh, How about yours? Well, what are your kind of G spots? Well, I mean, just on that topic, I, I know, I, and we we are going to talk about Roy Clark, I think, eventually more. But it, I, I feel that way about most of what he does, in that it is not necessarily the great greatest writing in the world, but the but the actual character comedy of it, and that the whether it's a Ronnie Barker or a Patricia Routledge, you know, doing this kind of stuff, they are the people who bring this alive. And I think, I think that's a case with a lot of the comedies that I really go for myself, actually. It's when you have a particularly outstanding comic performer make something of material that isn't in any way bad, because I think the best sitcoms really are a package. I think it is a combination of great writing, whether it's gags, whether it's character work, whether it's... I mean, I'm a big sucker for physical comedy. I mean, I really, really am. You know, I, I... I, I, it's the cl- most cliche thing in the world, but I think the be- one of the best only falls in the horses gags is when Del falls through the bar, which everyone has seen that clip a million times. Oh, whilst agreeing but not disagreeing, I would up that one and just say it's the chandelier. Oh, the chandelier! Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chandelier is chandelier. Amazing. Like that is yeah. May- maybe not the same kind of physical comedy, but that's just an outstanding. It is, gag. isn't it? it? It's brilliantly executed as well. So in terms of how it's visually put together, how the director stages that is is pitch perfect completely. And that that's one of the reasons One Foot in the Grave is a favourite as well, as you said, because you have so many in- instincts there. It, that that is one of the complete package sitcoms for me because it brings it all together. It brings together physical comedy. It brings together wit, it brings together intricacy and world building, like you say, and it brings together not just an actual gag, but it brings together the visual execution of that gag, which quite often is what makes it funny. And this is why David Renwick is one of my favourite writers generally, not just with comedy, because he's, he's, he's incredibly interesting to read about or listen to and about how he constructs a gag and how he sees a gag. And he, he must have been a nightmare, really, because he, he was effectively a ghost director on that show because he was there constantly <laughs> telling. But they but it made it funnier because he understood what a gag, how to execute a gag from that. It's not just about what comes out of someone's mouth. And I think that's that's something that the best sitcoms, even though most of them don't have the intricacy of one foot in the grave, they don't necessarily need that. Well, Only Fools and Horses doesn't no, need they don't. 
to have that. It's not, it doesn't have that all the time, but it doesn't need that. It can still do that. So I think for me, it's when you get something that taps into those those different kinds of areas. I suppose I, I, it's a bad way of answering, but I want all of it. <laughs> like, I'm like, I, oh, I agree. I, yeah, I agree do. with I know you. I know you do as well. No, yeah, yeah. And, and, but, so I don't know if I have a, I have a particular a particular one thing in a way. I, I feel like it's when you see them... It, I, I suppose the sitcoms that I'd be less bothered about are the ones where they aren't necessarily doing more than one thing in a way. Or maybe for me, I'm less a fan sometimes of the alternative stuff myself. I feel when a sitcom goes a bit too heavy into surrealism... And to be honest, I am struggling to think of an example here, but um, I, I, I maybe sometimes I switch off because I, I, I feel like what I really want are is a performance that elevates what is probably already good material, but then can bring in some of these different strands, bring in a great pratfall, bring in something that will make me think as well. Because when I when I look at a lot of these comedies and I watch a lot of these comedies now, there's always stuff, it's, there's quite often, it's quite, in British sitcom, it's quite often tragedy that underpins a lot of, a lot yeah. of it, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm fascinated by that and what it brings out. I'll never forget, I think it's the episode Happy Families of Only Fools and Horses, where Rodney gets married, and at the end of that, Delhi's on mm-hmm. his own in the, the reception, and it's before he meets Raquel and he ends up, you know, happy and has a child, but mm-hmm. he's, he's really sad at that point, because he's on his own, his brother's got yeah. married, his friends are all married and everything like that. And he's, he hasn't really got anyone, you know? And you really feel that, that it's really poignant. It's really powerful. And and that's what well, the, great sitcom can do, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we do, I think we do that quite well in British sitcom. You know, that you, you look at American sitcom and American sitcom quite often will have the little, you know, you have, you have your sort of, your, there's like 18 minutes worth of comedy and then you have one minute of kind of like, oh, but we've learned a lesson yeah. now. And then you have one minute closing yeah. gag. Whereas in British sitcom, I think that you can have these little bittersweet moments throughout an episode. They can fuel an episode. Mm. And then some British sitcoms, a whole episode can just end on a complete down. And Only Fools and Horses, I think, is is a fantastic example of that. And I I, I, I love it. And yeah, it's like the whole package. Like Only Fools and Horses is... At, at at moments it's fantastic yeah. drama yeah. and and very sort of socially relatable drama mm. and it's like yeah there's what is it there's an episode where where del boy gets beaten up on rodney's behalf yeah. I, I forget the episode oh, now. Yeah. Uh, but rodney comes in and he thinks del boy's screwed him over and he's drunk and he's basically screaming at del boy through through the, the you know the bedroom door about what a terrible brother he is and Del Boy's just sat on his bed covered in mm. bruises because he's had the shit kicked mm. out of him to protect Rodney. That never gets addressed. Mm. There's never a point where Rodney finds out and feels sorry for Del and, and uh, you know, and, and, and Del just kind of like... T- and it's like that level of, of drama that they can play with um, is uh, is brilliant. Oh, my God. my One of my favourite Christmas episodes of that show... Very early on is where Del meets meets a girl, and uh, she's got a, a little boy, and Del spends time, and he basically wants to 
marry this woman and be a, a stepdad and he's looking at how to get a proper job yeah. and become respectable and all this kind of stuff and then her ex comes back and she leaves Dell and it's absolutely heartbreaking yeah. and this is like the Christmas special <laughs> in an 80s sitcom it's like ha 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 oh, oh Dell's just had his life destroyed yeah, yeah. Uh, but I love that and it's that that kind of sense of, of the whole package which I think uh, you know a lot of the sitcoms that we're we're talking about here really do kind of like they have that characterization they have that that sophisticated comedy and they have that that element of of drama whether it's tragic drama or or sympathetic drama it's it's all mm. there pathos and yeah i think that's I, you know so that's a lot of what i look yeah, for yeah yeah definitely the same I, pathos is what we do so well i think in british comedy absolutely like the, the the ability to really and i'm not saying american comedy doesn't do it because it does and you know other other comedy in other it, countries it does, yeah. will, will do it as well but i think we're particularly good at it because i think there is always that sense, and we've talked about it a couple of times already on this show, but there's always that sense that underlying a lot of these characters is real sadness, is real tragedy, is a real sense of not really being who they want to be or not achieving in their life what they want to achieve. And that is what fuels a lot of the comedy in Britain. And and to this day, you know, it's still the same. It's still people who have underachieved or people who are trapped in scenarios or, you know, they are... They're not. I mean, you know, it's it's so fascinating to see the co- comparison. We talked about it in um in our in our episode on the Office, but I'm still working my way through the American Office, and I'm at, I'm at something like season six now, and I'm at the point where you really are rooting for the for Michael Scott, the the character, to be with yeah <laughs> a, a woman called Holly who he's met, and the, and it's a bit of a romance that hasn't quite got there yet, and they they're obviously great for each other, but they're not in the same place in many ways, and. It is fascinating, and I think you never would have done that with David Brent. You never, in a million years, would you have had that whole that, that plot line because it's impossible. Whereas with Steve Carell and the way that character's built up, he's still an absolute idiot, but you like him and you want him to be happy and you want him to succeed. With Brent, it's totally different, and, I, and I'm not going to go into all that like we did a couple of weeks ago. But it's the same principle in that the difference between how, in particularly American comedy, you end up wanting to root for these people. To six, and you, you're confident they're going to be okay and most of them are going to succeed and they're going to be fine. Whereas in British comedy, you're rooting for them, but they will always be the underdog and they will always, in some way, never achieve what they should or what they want to or what they can or they will fail. And that, and that is what makes them funny. And, and it's really... I mean, what does it say about British, the British psyche, Rob? <laughs> you know, that's what we think. Oh, God, you know? we, do, we, we love it. This t- I don't know what it's all tied into. Some kind of like... I think maybe we've got some massive collective guilt about the empire. <laughs> I think we do. And also yeah. we're all very we're all very well aware of the fact that we we lost said empire. So there's this combination of feeling guilty about what our our forefathers did. Um, also feeling annoyed that we we don't have what our forefathers had, yeah. and now we just sit there going, "Yeah, well, it's shit, isn't it? Yeah, but we deserve it." And that's it. That seems to be our collective. Everything's shit, but we sort of deserve it. Well, like, yeah, that's it. That seems to be it. I think it'll be interesting whether, as we grow older, as we grow into middle age and then old age, whether we will see sitcom change if Britain changes, because we're we're at a bit of a, a possible sort of tipping point in this country now. In that, not to get too political, but politics is all through sitcom and it's through comedy everywhere, really. When you look at it, but 
it, 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 I think we're at a bit of a tipping point in that it could go one of two ways, I think, now, the UK. It could go into a world of horrible sort of Toriness, or it could go into a world of actually where we start to reconcile a little bit of our history and our past and we genuinely come to terms with the fact that we're actually a bunch of bastards and we have been for like 400 years. So if we can come to terms with that, right, as a country, maybe we'll start to see comedy reflect a renewed optimism about the future and you will see British sitcoms start to actually start to go, well, you know what, actually, maybe some of these people will make it and they'll be okay. And I'd be very interested to see, and I wonder if you're starting to get that already a little bit in some of the more modern shows. I don't know. That's something we should look at in more depth and try and compare whether we're seeing a change in optimism compared to some of these shows we grew up with. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's a really interesting. Uh, yeah, and we should definitely try and. I suppose that there'll be certain shows that we that we do episodes on that 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 conversation. This is probably a conversation that we'll continue yeah. to have. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to see what will happen over the next sort of fifteen to twenty years of mm. comedy, as there's a new wave of comedy writers coming in. I, I, I mean, I suspect that the, let's say, the lack of optimism, or at least the sort of the that sort of self-deprecating thing, I think that might last a bit longer because as the more optimistic generation comes along, they may be making comedy that's poking fun at the previous generation. Poss- yeah, possibly. But yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe the following generation will have been. <laughs> Will have been lifted up by the time our yeah. our grandkids are making comedy, <laughs> then then British sitcoms maybe. might end on a slightly optimistic note. Yeah. Maybe we're going to be the generation that they start taking them once they're living in like biodomes because the environment's like a, sh- a, yeah. a shredded heat blast. <laughs> they'll be they'll be taking a piss out of us. Go you. F- you fucking millennials, you you, you just yeah. lounge around thinking everything's fine. That's what it will be. <laughs> Obviously, we you know we talk. This show's about sitcoms, but it also we're also talking about sort of overlapping things. I think we're talking about comedies that are they you know like The Office. Is it a sitcom? Does it have elements of other things? So I mean, in terms of comedy, we would have had other influences as well. So, what kind of other things for you? came in when you were younger when you were growing up you know in terms of whether it was movies whether it was sketch shows stand-up comedians what sort of filtered into your love of comedy then uh well you know all of those things actually i mean i so i was very very into radio comedy when i was little my my mm. father's a big radio comedy fan yeah radio 4 was always kind of like playing in the in the background and see sort of like shift from the news and then at six o'clock there'd be you know whether it was just a minute or you know old repeats repeats of the the goon show and stuff so so radio comedy was very big for me and also as a kid um you know a young kid i could go to bed and i could put on cassettes or or records as mm. uh, as we had in those days it's like I had, a, I had a massive record player in my bedroom, <laughs> yeah, about the size of a sofa. <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. It was this ridiculous they thing. Were crazy. But yeah, so I, I actually would like, you know, go to bed at night, you know, listening to old episodes of Round the Horn uh, and stuff like this when I was little. So radio comedy actually was always really, really big for me, kind of in, influential. And of course, a lot of those comedies were sitcom or at least sitcom adjacent. Mm. Uh, you know, Hancock's Half Hour you know I, I loved that on the radio and i used to watch you know watch the, the tv versions as well well a lot of them started on radio um, didn't they a lot of these shows that we like oh yeah. this is it i mean even even now a lot of the uh you know a lot of sitcoms start on radio yeah. 
you know, Miranda it was, a, was a radio show first and then kind of like shifted to TV. And that's, you know, re well, not that recent, I suppose, but relatively recent. But I was also so like radio comedy was a big thing for me. And that was obviously very closely tied to to sitcom in, because of all those kind of like crossovers. Um, but yeah, films. I mean, I kind of said briefly earlier about the fact, you know, we, we watched a lot of old films as kids. So we were watching a lot of those kind of, you know, everything from from Ealing comedies to to Norman Wisdom movies to Tommy Steele, the old uh, the old Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, Road Two movies, all these mm. these kind of things, and of course, uh, like American sitcom. You know, yeah. not not to do it a disservice in terms of its influence in my comedy taste. It's like again, like very very early, like you know, Channel Four at like six in the morning. Um, would show old episodes of, uh, you know, Mork and Mindy and, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Taxi would be on, yeah. uh, you know, BBC Two on, on a Friday afternoon and all this kind of stuff. And of course, um, you know, the, the biggies when I was little with things like MASH, Cheers, obviously, for, for me, for my generation, Cheers is just like the probably the most influential American sitcom for me. So I had a lot of, you know, a lot of these kind of like sitcom and sitcom adjacent Especially, again, when you're a kid, like, watching stuff like the old Carry On movies. Yes. So you watch the old Carry On yeah. movies, and, like, people like like Kenneth Connor, you know, there he is in the Carry On movies, a young man, and then suddenly he's cropping up in Hello, Hello, and Black yeah. Adder and these other kind of sitcoms. Yeah. So that was really, really exciting when you're little to sort of, like, spot these actors and see them see them moving across. Um, but s sketch comedy, I was, I was huge into sketch comedy as well. So Victoria Wood was one of my earliest kind of comedy obsessions. And I used to, I mean, I remember, you know, as seen on TV, was on quite late at night and I just used to sort of sit in my, my bedroom kind of like watching it um, on my little black and white TV that had to be tuned in. <laughs> so you weren't that posh, um, you know, you weren't that posh. Oh, no, no, I no, it was just, it was only, yeah. No, 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 no. When, when, my, when my parents upgraded from a, you know... 11 inch black and white tv to a 14 inch color tv i got the black and white but i still have to tune it by hand but yeah so a lot of a lot of sketch comedy was really important to me and especially actually victoria wood i think kind of feeds into into my kind of movement my evolution and my love of sitcom because uh victoria wood's sketch shows are, are fascinating they're unlike other sketch shows, I think, because for one, she was such a, a generous writer. So you had all these performers who were given, you know, regular sketches and long sketches. You know, Patricia Routledge used to do the, the Kitty sketches um, and things like this. You'd have whole sketches that Victoria Wood wasn't really involved in. She'd written them and she might play a, a side part, but she had all these fantastic actors performing for her and this very sort of like strong sense of character comedy going on uh not to mention obviously acorn antiques yeah. which was almost a, a sitcom in itself this is overall this little kind of like yeah. you know yeah you sort of like if you s strip that out of the sketch show then you yeah you've almost I, got a little sort of mini sitcom i, I think it, i'm pretty amazed that never became a show of its own actually with julie walters like i, I i'm surprised. I, I mean she I, I can only imagine that Victoria Wood fought the idea. Yeah. The, the BBC must have been throwing they must money have at her done. to try and do that. Yeah, yeah. No, and do, although, do you know what? I, rem I remember Acorn Antiques, and I remember finding that funny. I never really watched that show, though, massively. I was never really mm. 
into Victoria Wood, and I feel like I, I missed the boat there, and I should go and look at the stuff she did. Because, yeah, I, I, I was... I was I liked sketch stuff as well. I mean, the fast show for me was, was great. Although, I have to say, I re-watched the fast show f- a few years ago now, and I, I, I don't really think the first two seasons are super funny. Series three, for me, was when they hit the gold. And I, I think all, most of series three is absolutely brilliant. First two seasons are a bit more hit and miss. And I think, you know, you get that by the nature of these. You know, I remember, um, I think this was more like when I was about 18, but Big Train came out as well. Oh, yeah. And that was very hit and miss. But you get some that were really good. And it was obviously quite surrealistic. Do you also remember that one? Oh, what was it called? It was it was more in the, the noughties, but they, they brought together all of the old sitcom stars people like john inman frank thornton and they did a sketch show can you remember that did you ever watch that oh my goodness no i don't think i remember that i can't remember what it was called i'm I'm gonna imdb this as i speak now um and try and find out what it was called because it was really strange and it was really quite it was extremely hit and miss more miss if you want revolver right it was called revolver and uh, yeah and it, it was 2004 and it lasted like one series and it had, <laughs> yeah, it had, uh, I mean, it had some really great writers. It had people like Jesse Armstrong, Sam Bain, who did, went on to do Peep Show. It had, but it had everybody. It had all of them, like Gordon Kay, Lionel Blair, like Leslie Phillips. They were all in there. And they, you know, Bobby Ball, Rodney Buse. It was fascinating because they were doing these very modern sketches, quite surrealist, but it was all these old performers. That, I really need to find that on YouTube because that was, I, I remember really enjoying that at the time. <laughs> Uh, See, I, I either missed that altogether or I've blocked it out of my memory. Uh, I, can't. I mean, it was it, a lot of it was poor, but it was great to see these actors yeah. you know, uh, on again. And they were much older, but it was fascinating. And I think for me, I actually, on that subject of old actors, when you said the carry-ons, the carry-ons, I cannot overstate how important they were to me as a child. Like they were, at, they were constantly on the telly. My, my, my mum was a massive fan of them. She still is. As am I. I know they are problematic uh, in many ways, but I absolutely loved them. Like I, I really watched them so much. I could recite probably a few of those films off the off yeah. my mind. I, I and to this day, like I I still think they are genuinely hilarious. Many of them, uh, stuff like Carry On at Your Con- Convenience, which I think is one of the best. It, it is ridiculously like cheesy and camp and rude and ridiculous but i love it and i think those those were the kind of things that that i re- that really influenced me in a big way as i grew up definitely i think it was that kind of entertainment i think also some of the american stuff i i, I it, that was more as i was getting a bit older actually like as i was more getting into my late teens and early adults i think i started to find things like fraser which i still love to this day oh fraser is the is the key i think it's it is the absolute undisputed yeah some of Seinfeld you know particularly the last series of Seinfeld I thought was brilliant even though everyone else hated that I, I could never I could never get into Seinfeld it, it, it was it was it was that last series there wasn't any cuts away to him doing stand-up which I thought was good because he's not very good <laughs> like, I've never found him funny he's not very good uh, he's not very good at anything yeah. <laughs> I've got a talk and walk why am I talking and walking I've got a talk and walk <laughs> God, someone yeah, shoot him in the yeah, face. Exactly. I know. I was like, no, I can't. I can't be doing with that. <laughs> um, so yeah, but also stand-up comedians. I mean, I don't know about about, about you with stand-up comedy. I mean, I, I um, 
I, I grew up loving Jasper Carrot. I used to watch um, Carrot Confidential and oh. all that stuff. He was great. I mean, at his peak, like in the 80s and 90s. I mean, and I saw yes. him live at the Birmingham Hippodrome once, and that was great. Like about seven of my mates went as well. He was he was huge for me. What about for you for stand up comedy? Have you got any particular well, favourites? Yeah, fun. I was gonna kind of yeah. I mean, like so, stand up actually was is a huge, huge part of um, my kind of like yeah my comedy evolution, if you want to call it that, and also has ended up being a big part of my uh, working life later on, but. I was so well yeah sort of not to sort of like harp on but sort of back to Victoria Wood obviously Victoria Wood's sketch show included little chunks of stand-up and she was probably probably the first stand-up comedy you know comedian that I could remember but I was massively into stand-up comedy uh Jasper Carrot obviously was, was a big one for me and I used to have um some of his some of his records some yeah. of his albums that I would listen to and Billy Connolly was a it was a big one when I was you know when I was younger when I was little. He's great, yeah. Um, used to love Billy Connolly. You know there were a lot, I mean actually Morecambe and Wise. Yeah. I mean again not not necessarily stand up but in that kind of you know the sort of the sketch well, comedy and the patter comedy like two Ronnies. Yeah, well. I loved the two Ronnies. Yeah, me too. I think in in the same way that um, I mean I I'd, I'd agree with everything you said about the the Carry On movies. And I think, it, but in a very similar way, Morecambe and Wise were like a huge, huge influence on on my comedy tastes and my appreciation of comedy. And then as I got older, yeah, it's like you know, Jack D was. I was a big fan of Jack D um, and uh, Eddie Izzard and these kind of people. You know, Ben Elton actually. When I was very little, I used to fucking love Ben Elton <laughs> when I was a kid. You know, I used to watch like you know, stay up late night and watch Ben Elton doing jokes about Margaret Thatcher and, <laughs> and British Rail, and I barely understood any of it. But I was like, I fucking love Ben Elton; he's fantastic. It's a delivery, isn't it? I think a lot of the time uh, with these people. I, well, I think it is. That's that's it, isn't it? For like for like stand up comedy. Mm. And I know we're obviously talking about and focusing on sitcom, but I think it is fascinating how so many of these other influences that we're talking about are are sitcom adjacent. It's like I think that you know you look at the um, the Carry On movies and there there are elements of of the sitcom format in those movies. Yeah. You know, you have the same actors playing similar you know characters and character archetypes. You almost have catchphrases. There's there's a sort of a, a, a comforting nature to those movies that you also get from from sitcom. And again, the you know with like stand up comics you know a lot of the stand-up comics like Ben Elton is doing stand-up but he's also writing Blackadder and and uh, you, you know it's like all these these um, these influences that kind of like feed into each other and stand-up comedy ended up becoming very um, big in my working life because it was it was watching people like you know Ben Elton and and uh, Billy Connolly that that made me want to work in TV along with lots of other other influences um, and I was lucky I, I then got to go and work on lots of comedy shows worked on live at the Apollo for years years and years I wow, worked on live cool. at the Apollo so you know these it, it, it was really interesting to to grow up with all these influences watching all these different shows and these different performers and then to go on and to be able to be involved in in making those shows and meeting those people who had made these shows that I loved mm. it's crazy it's actually crazy when you realize how much these shows can influence our lives. No, yeah, ma massively, 
hugely. I was going to ask you about this in terms of yeah, like telling us anything you can about you know your your experience working with with comedy. Did you work on any? Did you work on any sitcoms particularly? Is there anything particular that you can tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I have. I've worked. I've worked on a few sitcoms. I've I've worked on a couple that I. It's, it's cool to talk about. I've worked on a few pilots that I've that I can talk about mm. vaguely. Also, my 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 ex, she used to work in sitcoms. So there are a few sitcoms that I was kind of. I got to go and hang out oh, nice. with, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So I didn't necessarily work on, but I got to go and hang out on set and meet everyone and just sort of like watch a few records and stuff. Uh, but I, well, I actually, I mentioned it earlier. I did, I worked on Miranda, mm-hmm. on the first series of Miranda. And I'm, I'm going to be 100% honest, as as an audience member, as a viewer, um, Miranda doesn't really do it mm. for me. I, I'm not a big fan of that show. But working on it, I got a you know, very different perspective of, of what she was doing and what she was trying to achieve. And I actually loved what she was doing with that because she really was trying to create, she was trying to create an old-fashioned sitcom Mm. the kind of sitcoms that we've just been describing growing up and watching uh that's what she wanted to to create and it was this sort of like this affectionate uh and really quite sophisticated sitcom everyone makes fun of miranda because she just falls off chairs and stuff uh and she talks to camera and it's like oh it's so old-fashioned it's so cheesy and it's like well no it's quite it's quite clever it's quite sophisticated what she's doing here you you think it's old-fashioned and cheesy because that's what she's going for Mm. and you know when she falls off a chair it's like she's she's doing that very deliberately she's looking to camera and she's saying if this was a cheesy sitcom i'd fall off my chair right now and then she falls off her chair so so working on that show i got the insight of what she was going for and and yeah like it didn't it didn't work for me as a viewer but working on things even things that you don't necessarily like or enjoy it's it's fascinating for me so it's one of the like most interesting parts of it plus on that i got to meet peter davison which was quite cool because he was my doctor cool um so that was like that was like my sort of big thing working on that show yeah walking around television center oh that's great yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you sort, you sort of there meet. It's like you know, be, stay cool, stay cool. It's I was like, gonna don't say, Doctor Who. Don't oh, well, did who. you? I was gonna say, did you ask him anything? You no, you been. know what? This is the this is the best thing. He's like the nicest guy in the world. I was like complete, completely professional. Obviously, it's like I'm not going to ask him about Doctor Who. That would be unprofessional. <laughs> Walking through Television Centre, taking him to his dressing room, and suddenly he's like, "Oh, I haven't been here since goodness knows." Well, we used to shoot Doctor Who. And he starts giving me this tour of Television Centre. He's like, oh, that used to be my dressing room when we do the, the, no the VT shots. I'm just like, thank you. <laughs> you didn't even have to ask. That's cool. Didn't even have to yeah. ask. What yeah. a nice guy. But yeah, so that was, you know, that was interesting. And I, I, worked on, I worked on Red Dwarf when that came back. And that was kind of like a biggie for me because that was one of the shows that made me want to work in TV. Like watching a show like Red Dwarf, I was like... This is what television can do. This is what sitcom can do. How incredible is this as a sitcom? That like they they're doing this. They're 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 outdoing dramas. They're outdoing high level, high budget dramas in this thirty minute sitcom format. This is this is an outstanding piece of television. And then I got to work on it, which is fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, it's a weird world. So I've I've. Without turning this into an interview about me, which is not really that interesting. Um, I've worked on a few pilots for sitcoms. Mm. And that's the most telling thing because you can work on a pilot and you think, this is so good. This is perfect. 
this is gonna this is gonna get legs this is mm. gonna go and then nobody's interested uh, you know and mm. I can't really give details but I worked on no, sure. um, there was a, a pilot with Mitchell and Webb that I worked right. on mm. and it was genius it was such a clever idea did they write it they wrote it yeah. yep it was it was funny it was yeah it was a very 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 simple but very very clever idea had all the best people producing it all the best people involved and we were like well this is this is a this is a, a shoe in this is obviously and it didn't get picked up the bbc didn't want it um, and i've i've worked on a few others you know like that 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 you've kind of like the sort of the next thing from somebody big I've, I've done a few of those where somebody's just had a massive massive hit with something you know really really huge big names in it it's made everyone into a star and then they have their next project and you're kind of like oh yeah this is this is even better than that last thing and and nobody wants it is nobody it wants it is it because the idea is i mean are the are the are the ideas great but are they too niche are the, are, do you think it's when these the net, the you know, the company, you know, the well, so they're, they're called networks in the UK, are they? But the channels are, mm. are they looking for something that's maybe more mass marketable that they can explain a bit better? I mean, because if they've got stars who are hot, like Mitchell and Webb, you know, they're still today popular. You people would still watch Mitchell and Webb, even though Peep shows over and things like this. What? Why would you not take them on? Because they're, you know, people will watch their stuff. Is it? Is it because it's too niche? You know. No, it's imp- it's so hard to say. I think it, it it's like, well with with that one for example, and, and I can't I can't really go into details. Yeah, but that one okay. was was the opposite of niche. It was kind of like yeah. it was kind of like the the opposite of of Peep Show. Right. Okay. Um, you know, it was it was quite conventional sitcom, but but you know, but, but very good, or at least I felt very good. Some of the some of the pilots I've worked on have been quite niche or quite quirky or trying too hard mm. um, and you kind of think this is trying too hard is anyone going to pick it up the the biggest problem I think with with commissioners is that they they always want they want what they've just seen but they want the a new version of it so it's like it's really hard to get you know something like the mighty boosh I mean obviously that started on radio but something like the mighty boosh comes along you look at that on paper and it's like who's going to commission this it's surreal it's weird it's expensive and it doesn't have many jokes in it but somebody says let's give it a go they make it and it becomes a huge success and then the commissioners everything that that gets put on their desk after that for a couple of years they're like okay but we need the new mighty boosh we need something which is like the mighty boosh and what they fail to realize is that finding something which is the next mighty boosh is not looking for something like the mighty boosh yeah. looking for something which is off the wall doing something new something yeah. different in that same way mm. and it's the same way with stuff like flea you know now everybody wants flea bag they, mm. everybody wants the next flea bag but the problem is the next flea bag is not something like flea bag the next flea bag is something different and and i think the the channels and the networks and i've literally i mean i've been in rooms where this you know this very conversation is as gone round in a circle and it's painful to watch commissioners want the next surprise hit and the only way you get the next surprise hit is to take risks and to take chances 
and they don't like taking risks and taking chances, but they also don't like playing it really, really safe. <laughs> they want something in the middle, which quite often then that, will lead to diminishing returns either way, I guess, won't it? You know, Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, Miranda, it's like, I mean, I, I was talking about, you know, working on it and also as, as, a, as a viewer. So Miranda became really popular, and I think it is because she managed to key into what we love about sitcoms from 20, 30 years ago. But it was slightly fresh and it was slightly invigorated and it was a little bit cheeky and postmodern. So she ca- she managed to make an old-fashioned sitcom, but she made it quite new. Mm. But then the BBC got this... They got a taste for trying to make an old-fashioned sitcom. And then you got stuff like... God, I can't even remember what it was called, but that awful thing that Ben Elton wrote about a pl- town planning councillor or something. I think Ooh. it did like one or one series. Yeah, it was... That it rings was, a bell. Um, terrible. That, that rings a bell. Yeah, it was really, really awful. But it was that basically Ben Elton, were, you know, he was tapped to kind of write an old-fashioned sitcom. Mm. And it didn't work because you can't just the right way. do that. The right way. The right way. Yes, that was yeah. it. That was it. And it was it was this sort of like the in the wake of Miranda mm. trying to manufacture an old-fashioned sitcom. Mm. But, but the whole point of Miranda is that she, it all came from the right place. Because there was that weird, there was that weird point, the kind of pre-Miranda point, where you had stuff like the Thin Blue Line, you had stuff like Dinner Ladies, which was clearly an attempt to make an old-fashioned sitcom, mm. but it was almost, we were almost too close to when those sitcoms had been the norm. So it was kind, of, it just felt like they just felt a bit old-fashioned, a little bit old hat. By the time Miranda comes around a few years later, it's kind of like, oh, this is referential, this mm. is nostalgic. Yeah, there's there's a slight distance, isn't there? And we, we it sits along other things, and that's the thing. It's it is still that balance today, isn't it? Of, of trying to get these these things right. I mean, I, I, for instance, I would say Fleabag is an indication that I would say the next Fleabag, in some sense, has already happened. I think that's I may destroy you because it's not. Well, yeah, actually, I was going to say this. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's not conventional. It's it's comedy, but it's also drama. It's also really serious. It can be harrowing. It's a mixture of things because Fleabag itself would be a great one for us to talk about, but it's not conventional sitcom either. You know, it has lots of different things pulling in. And I think that's where comedy is going these days, you know, in terms of how the next thing beyond this will be more of a complicated picture. And and that so so that fits exactly what you're saying in that somebody, probably because it was relatively cheap to make, took a risk on, well, not a risk because Michaela Cole's already been building for a while, but... They saw the potential in I May Destroy You and it went on to be incredibly critically acclaimed and will that will gather more steam and word of mouth. I mean, she's just been casting like Black Panther 2. So, you know, it's certainly taken her career off. Do you know what I mean? It, well, these things tend to build. Like Fleabag, you know, Fleabag was hugely more popular and being anticipated by the second series than it was the first. The second series that originally was never even going to happen in the first place. Well, this is, I mean, I think this is this has often been the case. I mean, you even look at stuff like, you know, even stuff like Blackadder or The Office. It's like so many, you know, Red Dwarf. Yeah. So many of the, the you know, the most popular shows, oh God, Men Behaving Badly mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. Uh, these popular shows, it's like they only just managed to get a second series. Mm-hmm. And it's quite often from that second series that they become huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sort of scrape through at the beginning, don't they? That's really, really interesting to learn a little bit more about about your uh, your your back your background with with this. I dare say bits and bobs will pop up as we talk about different things over the time as well. So we'll learn a little bit more, and you'll give us some more insights. But it's really interesting. Yeah, I'll tell you who all the bastards. Yeah, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just even if you tell me, you know, <laughs> then we'll 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 hint at it through the show. 
<laughs> we'll put a bleep. Yeah, 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 just a bleep. yeah, yeah. We'll just bleep it. Put some bird song in. But like, um, <laughs> yeah. It, let, let's talk then. Let's let's wrap up then by talking about our favourite sitcoms. Then I mean, we, we we this could go on for like hours. So we've sort of pinned it down to a top three. Now, I know we've got different sort of ranking systems for this. I'm going for my favourites. I'm not necessarily saying these are objectively the best three sitcoms ever. I'm going for my mm-hmm. three personal favourites. So how are you framing this, Rob, for you? Okay, so this is sorry, this is really boring, but I was, I was thinking about <laughs> this for ages. I was thinking about this for ages. So basically, it's, it's important for me to explain what this list is not. Because, okay. yeah, so like, like personal three favourites, um, these aren't necessarily my three favourites. They are not necessarily the three that I think are the best of all time, because obviously there are some sitcoms that aren't my favourite sitcom, but they're technically really good sitcoms. And they're not even three that I would say, watch those three and this explains my sense of humour. But what these are for me, these are three that, in terms of this discussion we've had, these are three that really tie into why I love sitcoms. So... Not necessarily my favourites, not necessarily, in my opinion, the best, and not even necessarily my my sense of humour to a T, but these are the three that explain my, my relationship with sitcom. Mm. And to be honest, two of them definitely sort of, you know, stretch across all of those lists anyway. So these these three explain my relationship with sitcom. Okay. All right, then. That's interesting. Yeah, we've gone from slightly different angles there. That's 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 cool. That's cool. Okay. So why don't you give us your first choice then, or wh- however you want to do this? Uh, cool. Well, okay. Well, so first choice then, I guess, uh, is Blackadder. Cool. Any particular series? Yeah. So, so for me, it is genuinely it's it's all of it. Even even the first series, which obviously is a completely different kind of format. Uh, all all of Blackadder, including Back and Forth, and including Cavalier Years and and Christmas. Uh, Carol in particular, outstanding. But if I was going to like really focus down, then it, it's Blackadder the Third, which is which is right, okay. absolutely the, the the pinnacle of Blackadder for me. Cool. What what is it about that series then? Because for me, I would say Blackadder goes fourth, but I think it's it depends, doesn't it? What is it about the third one for you? Well, everything we've been talking about about what we like about sitcoms, and also you know it's about our age and stuff as well. It's like. Um, like Blackadder the Third, I, I suppose it was the fir- well, no, it was the first Blackadder that I was excited that it was coming back. So I was just old enough to watch Blackadder the Second first time round, and like I said, it was one of the shows that I would watch with my parents, and I really liked it, and it was it was a little bit irreverent and a little bit silly, and it was historical, which and it was sort of clever, and I understood some of the history jokes and stuff, which was really cool, and so I loved it. And so when Blackadder the Third was was getting ready to come out, was being trailed, that was really exciting for me because it was a new series of that show that I had just watched, you know, the previous year or whatever. And it was the, the changing in the setting. So it was a really exciting thing for me to have that show be on. Uh, because it was sort of like I'd actually developed a fandom, one of my early fandoms for it. But also, and this not not just at the time, um, but this is kind of like, you know, looking back at it now, I will always stand by this. I think it is genuinely the the pinnacle of the the writing on that show. The writing has never been um, better or sharper or more focused. And, you know, I, I, I love Blackadder the second, but it's still it's still tied ever so slightly to its 
alternative comedy roots. It's still got a little bit of the young ones in there. Um, you know, characters break the fourth wall. They address camera a couple of times. Um, it, you know, it's like it's a it's a little bit anarchic. All of which is great fun and and really really strong within within the narrative. Yeah. But it still has that slight early eighties, you know, Ben Elton kind of vibe <laughs> to it. And yeah. Blackadder goes forth is is great. I love. I love Blackadder Goes Forth, but it's also just a little bit more formulaic. It's just kind of like settled in. Some of the jokes are a little bit more familiar, um, and it does some very, it does some very, very sophisticated stuff. It does, you know, it tells tells a great story, and it's very obviously it's far closer to us in in terms of. Um, sort of historical distance so it feels a lot more real and they just get away with it they just get away with it in terms of the, the setting of it um, but Blackadder the Third I think is it's it's its funniest it's its cleverest in terms of the kind of the the political and social allegory which is a big part of Blackadder mm. the satire in it um, works best in that because of course Blackadder goes forth it's so it's so recent mm. that the satire feels a little bit more conventional whereas that kind of like historical allegory satire is so strong in Blackadder the third um, and also it gets to it gets to um, take from other uh, other sources in a way that the the earlier and the later shows didn't so I, ju I just think it's the whole show is at its absolute best it's like it's 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 most focused and I think um Blackadder's Christmas Carol I yeah, sort of include that within that series yeah, yeah the, the the quality of the writing on that is absolutely yeah. outstanding it's so good. absolutely fantastic um, um, so yeah third third is always is always my my favorite I, I love well, it it's so well, good I, and again it's like everything I said about creating a world yeah, creating a world yeah. that that pulls me in a lot of people say the third actually I think and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to um because we'll do Blackadder at some point, I think we'll probably do it. Oh, yes. um, I'm yeah. looking forward to doing a full rewatch of that show and go um, so we can go through it because that's going to be. It's been years since I've watched all of it back to back, so it will be. That'll be a lot of fun, I think. Yes, it's so good. It's so good to do the whole thing and like sh yeah. blitz yeah. it through just, the whole damn dynasty. Bang it out. But yeah, I'm going to go for for my first one. Now these, to be fair, these three are sort of equal pegging for me in many ways, and I could have added so many more. In a lot of the ones we've talked about. You know, today, <laughs> um, things like maybe having badly only falls and horses, but I just these are the three I think I've probably rewatched the most over the years. So I'm going to go for these. Mm -hmm. My first one is Bottom by Rick, Rick Mail, A. Edmondson, early nineties. The the most sort of puerile sitcom I think ever made, like Bottom. I think just <laughs> on a basis of it's two pervy losers in a dirty flat in London who basically just are trying constantly to get laid. That's essentially the the concept of the show, and it is as anarchic as as it comes. All they basically do is swear at each other, punch each other in the face, kick each other in the bollocks. On the face of it, underneath bottom has a lot more going on. And I, there's um there's a book actually coming out that I've uh, I did the Kickstarter for, where there it's a critical analysis of bottom, which I can't wait for, and it's coming out. I think they they're getting it ready. I can't wait to read that because I think Bottom has a lot of hidden depths and I think it's it's saying a lot about the role of the modern man and about sexual frustration and the character that Rick Mal plays particularly is 
he is a sort of real mashup of lots of different sort of male British comedy archetypes going all the way back to people like Hancock. And I think I think it's brilliant. I think Bottom, when it's on form, and it's quite it's three seasons and about three or four live shows, I'd say two or three of which are great, the rest aren't. I saw the fourth one, an arse oddity. Great title, not so great show. Um, <laughs> I didn't love the show particularly, but um, they are they are great fun to watch. It, it I think Bottom on its day is absolute genius, and it is it is so brilliantly funny in how it pulls off a hell of a lot of physical comedy, anarchic, anarchic levels of comic book violence, great gags, brilliant puns. And even levels of character comedy, even if there is no development. You know, they are pure archetypes. You will never <laughs> see Richie get laid. You will never see Eddie Hitler. Eddie Hitler. I still can't believe they named the character Eddie Hitler, but they did. You will never see Eddie escape Richie, even though he's always trying to, whether he's trying to get money or he's trying to... They will be fixed forever. And that's kind of why I'm glad that they never did that fourth series that they were talking about doing years and years later, not long before Rick Mal tragically died young. It, I'm glad it never happened, really, because that those three season series at the start of the '90s are like beautiful, and I I, I cherish them. And I, and I've got some of my closest friends, one of whom in particular I know will be listening to this. We can recite bottom verbatim, and we frequently have like in conversations, just joking around. I adore it with all my soul, bottom. Um, so, <laughs> well, I think it's like it's like a culmination of their kind of. It, it, it's almost like the 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 finite concentration of their comedy, yeah. isn't it? Over the years, you kind of like you look at the preceding ten years of what they were producing, and it was. I, I guess you could argue that it was all kind of like leading towards yeah. that. And yeah, in terms of them ever doing a fourth series, it's like I I don't think it no. would work because, to be honest, they kind of they they almost put that to bed they almost put that style of comedy mm. to bed you know and sort of like both sort of like moved on to different obviously rick mail is it's absolutely heartbreaking he died on my birthday um, you know but i think oh really yeah. oh god died on my birthday in 2014 but that really kicked me in the knackers so every time every time i have a birthday now i also think of him because i was genuinely gutted that was like one of my idols dying like i, I was so so sad when he died I mean, he was just—he was—he was fantastic. He was. He was. I—it's—it's I, it's heartbreaking because I feel like he never really reached the potential. I think he was—I I honestly feel like he was, creatively speaking, he was moments away from that kind of um, dramatic breakthrough. Yeah. You for know, sure. I, I feel like he was—he was a—he was, was just about to transition into a, a, a dramatic well, actor he's great in um, proper I feel it's still sort of comedy but he's great in Jonathan Creek when he plays a detective oh my goodness outstanding he's brilliant. And there, was, there was a lot of talk about that they wanted to do a spin off with him I'm not surprised he was so uh, good in that and he, yeah. and he played a quite a straight up character yeah um, um, uh, you know my, my actually probably my favourite performance of his was always um, Alan Bastard yes which yeah. is a a, a the new statesman. Uh, actually, yeah. a really sophisticated acting performance. Yeah. Like, it's it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. And and yeah. you know, a great great actor as is Aid Edmondson, obviously still going. And that they they, they they it would never have worked without the other that show. Oh, God, they no. were incredible, and the writing and you know performance front. But um, 
yeah, it, for me, it doesn't get much better than bottom. So, what's your second one then? What would you say? Um, so my so my second one is red. Uh, I knew I knew that was good. You've you've not surprised me at yeah, all. Yeah, so <laughs> gonna be gonna be red dwarf. Um, for, you know what? For very similar reasons to to Black Adder and and uh, you know everything that I, we've talked about and what I was saying about my my comedy G spot being this kind of creating a world, creating you know an entire closed environment. I think Red Dwarf is just fantastic. Like I say, it inspired me to work in TV and I got to work on it, which is like, it's crazy. Like to actually, to actually sort of like, you know, grow up watching something and then get to be part of it is just, it's just fantastic. I'm I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky. But yeah, without, without repeating what I said about Blackadder, it, uh, it was that thing of, you know, watching it when I was little, being excited about the next series, anticipating it, um, and yeah, just really being blown away because it it was. I think Red Dwarf kind of has has two types of fan, uh, and I would class myself as being both of those. But I think there are some people who are huge fans of it simply as a science fiction show because it's it's one of the best science fiction shows out there. And then there are a lot of people who are fans of it simply as a sitcom. Like my, my, my dad was never a huge Red Dwarf fan, but he used to watch it and enjoy it as a sitcom because he doesn't really like science fiction. Uh, my mother's a huge science fiction fan and she used to watch it and really enjoy it as a, as a sci-fi show. Uh, and for me, it was, it was both. And I just think it really, it really highlights the scope of what you can do with sitcom and what you can do with a sitcom budget. If you've got, if you've got a willing, creative cast writers and production team like that's what you can do that's what you can do with you know with your tiny little you know tiny little budget i mean i i I worked on um actually well i worked on back to earth the uh yeah the sort of the the dave comeback special Mm. um and i i cannot even tell you the budget we had for that you you simply wouldn't you'd think i was bullshitting (laughs) if i told you how much money that cost considering how considering how how mm. it looked and i think that that's just i think it's fantastic and actually and i think that this is this is present in in particular in shows like um only fools and horses and 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 i think that it was you know for especially my experience working on on back to earth i think that red dwarf is one of those sitcoms that definitely wanted to kind of like segue into more comedy drama mm. And I think some sitcoms have done this. Some sitcoms have started out very sitcommy, like Only Fools and Horses. But then by by the time they've sort of finished, by the time those sitcoms have been put to bed, it's basically a it's basically a comedy drama with a laugh track. And I think that that Red Dwarf had, you know, has had that that journey. And and yeah, I just I love I love a show that shows you the potential of what you can do in a thirty minute comedy show yeah 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 yeah. I, I i confess i haven't watched all of red dwarf i've watched the odd episode it's a show that i need to properly sit down and do um for it's bizarre really because i love science fiction and i i don't quite know why i've never really clicked with red dwarf yet so i i need to go back to it properly especially now we have shipwrecked and comatose uh, we made this podcast that's doing amazing you know it's a fantastic they've like up to like series five or six now and it you know it's going great guns i've got that to listen to as well which will be a lot of fun so yeah amazing. i will i will 
definitely go and, and do it. it you know what it, it's funny though isn't it that some shows they kind of they slip us slip yeah. past us almost I don't know why and there are there are so many shows out there and also it can be difficult as well you, you do you ever find this thing where you tell somebody that you like a, a particular show so you say, oh, I really love, I really love this sitcom. I think it's really fun. Yeah, I really love Men Behaving Badly. I love Men Behaving Badly. And someone says, Oh, you like Men Behaving Badly? You should try Game On. If you like Men Behaving Badly, you'll love <laughs> Game On. And then you sit down and you watch Game On, yeah. and you're like, This is not really Men Behaving yeah. Badly. And it it can really throw you yeah. sometimes when people. And Red Dwarf is the kind of show where the fans of it are gonna like, they're gonna like really say, You gotta watch, you gotta watch Red Dwarf. Whatever you do, don't. Like some idiots will will try and get you to watch, you know, episode three of series five and say that's the best jumping in point. Isn't that the worst thing when someone tries to get you into a show that they love? And so they just get you to watch their favorite episode. Yeah, I am fully of the mind that if you start from the beginning, you know, it doesn't matter if the beginning is, you know, I say this with the X-Files being a massive X-Files fan. The first series of the X-Files is ropey at points, but I would always say start at the beginning. You know, and and it's the same for everything. So yeah, 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 definitely. I look I look forward to my my journey on Starbug at some point eventually. So, I, for my second one, I'm going for a show we've talked about a little bit already. One Foot in the Grave, with by David Renwick, starring Richard Wilson and Annette Crosby as the Meldrews, Victor Meldrew. It, it's one of those shows I think, and I've written a bit about One Foot in the Grave, and I intend to write a bit more about it as well. And we will definitely do it at some point soon, I think. It's a show that has been mischaracterized sometimes for two in two ways. And I mentioned this a little bit on the introduction episode we did, actually. The first one being that people have always got Victor Meldrew back to front in that they think he's a big old miserable bogger and they, they forget that actually he was he's a very sensitive character who actually was just angry at the, all the awful people in the world he would encounter. So that was that they've got that back to front. And I think it's been remembered more for the catchphrase, I don't believe it, then it has the skill and intricacy of the whole thing. You know, it, it's it's almost like, oh, it's a catchphrase. It's really not. Like, One Foot in the Grave is possibly the most tightly plotted, cleverest, or one of the cleverest shows that's ever been made in British comedy. Because it is, it, it takes a scenario and it twists and inverts it in remarkable ways, always teetering on the edge of not just surrealism, but downright sometimes supernatural paranormal weirdness without ever going fully into either and remaining conventional in a sense in that it's set in a house it's set with it's got a couple it has sitcom scenarios like the the neighbors who are always getting the wrong end of the stick or the they go to a holiday they go on holiday to the coast to their weird like an upset there you know, their friends and all these kind of sitcom scenarios that you would have seen in all of the things that David Renwick used to watch or even work on back in the 70s. And it really throws them up in the air and it makes them macabre and weird and strange and tragic and odd. And yet at the same time, it's anchored by these two performances, absolutely magnificent performances by Richard Wilson and Annette Crosby. Oh, superb. They are absolutely incredible. Brilliant writing by David Renwick, who would think the plot's through so much he would lie on his carpet face down for hours and just think because he he, could, he had to make things connect up. And, it, and that level of intricacy showed and the torture that he put himself through showed because the plotting was incredible. In, in, in the episodes that are, even in an episode so simple as they are stuck in a traffic jam, like 
halfway th- oh, halfway yeah. through the episode, a character comes in to the car who you don't expect to pop up at all. Who's just been to the shop because they're stuck in a traffic jam, and it's just like it, it's hilarious because you're like, <laughs> you didn't expect this at all. It's an out- outstanding like, gag. It's like it, like it's just superb. It's and and so it do- and then there's a, in that episode you've got. You've got a, 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 car, a flirting conversation happening between a car on the one side and a car on the other through the car that Victor's in. <laughs> and he's going, will you mind? Don't have your sex lives in my car. It's that kind of thing. It is so clever. And, and I think I, I love it in, so much because it is smart and witty, but it's also sad. And it has one of the most bittersweet endings of a show and a real conclusive ending to a comedy I've ever seen. I, I think it is marvellous and it is uh, it is peerless when it's at its best for me yeah absolutely and i think you know everything we've talked about you know what makes british sitcom and what we like about british sitcom it's all summed up in one foot yeah. grave it is you know it really i mean i think it's it's and you're right it's i think it does get misremembered and it does get you know because it because it it's sort of forward presenting as as you know jolly sitcom which is which is obviously part of the whole point yeah. of it the part of the concept that you know you can't be subversive if if it's you know you make a, a what well, a show like bottom or a show like nightingales or you know even the young ones it's like these shows are quite clearly subversive you know that you're going to sit down and see something subversive from these just because of the presentation of them one foot in the grave you know, oh, the, the the title's quite dark, but it's sort of cheeky dark. And you sit down, it's like, oh, these nice middle-aged couple. We've got the very nice, bright house. It all seems very safe and comfortable, which is, of course, what makes the darkness <laughs> and the sinister. It, it feels so, so relatable. Yeah. My, my, my father always used to sum it up with the fact that um, there is nothing that happens to Victor Meldrew that you couldn't believe happening yeah. to somebody in real life and the difference is is that the things that happened to victor would happen to one person over 30 <laughs> years and they happen to him over 30 minutes yeah yeah he but they they never they never step outside of plausibility no 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 matter how extreme they become exactly and they do like there's there's a brilliant episode where his car gets stolen and he's he's wanted it to get stolen because it's crap and then it turns up and it was found in finland and it's full of like weeds. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like yeah. Finland. That car couldn't get to Finchley, and it's like it's brilliant because it's like it, the joke is that it's gone all that way, and, it, and they've they've managed to get it back. But it is it one foot in the grave is full of bureaucratic technicalities that just fuck him up, fuck him over all the time. He is chronically bad, unlucky. It, but it is it is it like you say, it's never stuff. That, that is impossible. It might be extreme. It might push the edges of reality, but it, it could happen. And the, and the joke is that, yeah, it does. He's cosmically unlucky. And the misunder- level of misunderstanding and farce is just phenomenal at times. And, and it, yeah, it's, I, it's so good. It's just so good. I actually, I actually can't wait to dedicate an episode to, to talking about it because yeah. uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a joy to watch. And it's a joy to talk about as yeah, a show there is loads loads that I'm looking for I wrote an article on the um, the horror in One Foot in the Grave which I particularly <laughs> I got a good reception to actually I particularly enjoyed so that would be fun to unpick that as well because there's loads of like references to horror films and things like that in there so that would be good oh yeah what's your final one then what's your third one Rob okay so my third one and 
and yeah it's a bit i mean like one foot in the grave were you know on, on a slightly different list you know if we're steering more towards my favorites or what i think are the uh, the technically best one foot in the grave would probably have taken that spot but my third one on on the basis that i've gone with is last of the summer wine oh wow okay by roy clark cool and and just to sort of to, to pick it apart ever so slightly so you know we've touched on roy clark and we've talked about the fact that you know, I think we both, I suspect, feel that Roy Clark, as a writer, is not necessarily the 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 best or the or the the, the greatest comedy mm. writer. But his shows are always filled with these amazing actors, yeah. like genuinely yeah. amazing actors. Uh, and you know, if you put this the script in the hand of a different cast, you you know, it would probably be be dire, mm. or at least mm. his his foibles might show up. But Last of the Summer Wine, for me, it it actually ties in so you know I, I don't think it's the greatest sitcom I don't think it's the funniest sitcom I think it has all of Roy Clark's problems as a writer but it also it also um, benefits from from having this outstanding cast especially at its at its core period and so for me the reason that I've put it on this list in terms of this discussion in terms of my falling in love with sitcoms is because it has such an important place in my heart from when I was little, because this really was the kind of the the Sunday afternoon, sitting down with the family, all watching it together, yeah. sitcom. And I, you know, from a very early, I mean, actually, I suppose, like we we talked about, you know, what were the first sitcoms that I remembered? I, I guess, um, you know, maybe Last of the Summer Wine, if if I'm sort of being honest, or at least it's it's the first sitcom that I remember having this relationship with. Um, so, so sort of spooling back to that question that I gave a long non-answer to, maybe, maybe Last of the Summer Wine is, is the first one because it was, you know, it was always on because it ran for nearly 30 years. It, it, it yeah. you know, it ran for most of my lifetime. And Roy Clark wrote all um, of them. I mean, that, I mean, that's the one thing ev- about him. Every single one. He, I mean, I think he's still alive, isn't he? I don't think he's died yet. He no, he's still writing. Um, yeah, I think he's he's still doing and, still open all hours. Yeah, and he's got to be about ninety now. And th- that man, he's incredibly oh, he prolific. The amount of scripts he's written, like it's in the hundreds and hundreds. So you know, fair oh, play. Oh God, yeah. And I mean, we kind of you know we think about the biggies. We think about Last of Summer Wine, Keeping Up Appearances, Open All Hours. You know, those those are his biggies. Those are the ones he'll be remembered for. But he produced shitloads of sitcoms, you know, and sitcoms <laughs> yeah. that ran like two or three series, you yeah. know, back in the 70s and early 80s. He had so much going on. Um, the fact that he writes the same characters over and over again and they do the same <laughs> jokes probably makes it easier for him. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. So for me, like in the 80s as a little kid, you know, Last of the Summer Wine used to be on every Sunday and it was like, it wasn't just six episodes. You'd get sort of like 13 episodes. They were long series. And I actually think that the show's heyday, the the show's best years were in the early eighties. It was when they had the the you know Compo Clegg and and Seymour, which I think was the, the the dynamic that worked the best. And it was always this idea that you know you had a, an optimist, a pessimist, and a realist, and that was that was how it always worked with those three characters. And so it has this really important place in my heart in terms of the the relationship that I have with sitcoms in terms of the ritual of watching sitcoms in terms of 
the the idea of what a sitcom was you know like the the christmas specials of last of the summer wine and we've not even touched on christmas specials in in this chat here alone but that's a huge part of i think what makes sitcoms important and influential at least for me so it was a, it was a it was a huge part of my of my childhood and that burgeoning development with sitcom and as well as the conversations that i would have mostly with my father about comedy and about sitcom because I have this shared love of comedy with my father and it's where I kind of like learn you know obviously we you know we we have our own tastes but our tastes get influenced by how we're nurtured and I would watch Last of the Summer Wine with my dad and I enjoyed it he enjoyed it but he would be quite critical of of the writing or the quality of it or when there would be a cast change you know he would he would discuss with me about whether it worked better with this cast or that cast and that really, yeah, it nurtured my understanding of comedy as well as my my appreciation for what I now consider to be good or bad writing or performances. But also Last of the Summer Wine, I don't want to do it down too too much. It was a great sitcom, like the, the core format, the core principle behind it was brilliant. And I think it, I always loved the fact that it ran for so long. Unfortunately, it, it ran too long. I don't know if anyone would disagree with that. Mm. Um, and it hit a point, you know, its last few years where it was, it was so littered with aging comedy actors yeah. who basically couldn't, they could, most of them could barely move. So, <laughs> so you would have a whole episode that just involved like going to different people's doorsteps yeah. and they step out and someone just goes, hello. <laughs> and someone else goes, oh, don't come in. So it's like, oh, have you seen Marina? And that, that was it. It was, was like it. people popping up yeah. to say one or two. It was like a geriatric fast show yeah. by the end. <laughs> Just to, you know, it was like Revolver. It was like that show Revolver, which you need to go. Yeah, well, there we go. It really was. <laughs> that was what it was like. Well, it was, wasn't it? It's like all those. I mean, Rodney Bewes must have yeah. turned up in Last of Summer Wine at one point. I'm sure. I think everybody, everybody uh, was you in know, it. Frank, like by the end. That's it. It became it became a retirement home yeah. for for these old actors. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but during during the mid eighties with the with the compo Clegg and Seymour, I think the show was at its best. It was just silly enough. They were just active enough, uh, and. Peter Salas is just an outstanding actor. He was so warm and genuine. And because I grew up kind of in that area, I was, you know, I was born born in Yorkshire, grew up in the Northeast. Okay. So there was something very, very comforting and very sort of like very reassuring and homely for me mm. in that show. And I, I recognised a lot of the characters um, in extended family that I had. You know, my yeah. my father's family from Hartlepool uh, and the surrounding areas. So there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of connective tissue for me so yeah without without waffling on as i want to do i don't think it's the best sitcom of all time i i think that it definitely had its peaks and i think that definitely the the cast elevated what was mostly uh, you know an average script but it has such a strong place in my heart in terms of my relationship and my evolution with sitcom so that that's why it's kind of it's on there and it may seem like an outlier you've got Blackadder, Red Dwarf which make perfect sense and then Last of the Summer Wine kind of plopped in there but it's a, a really yeah really important show for me in terms of my my relationship with sitcom well I'm looking forward to the uh, the binge watch of Last of the Summer Wine which is brace yourself <laughs> for when we do Roy Clark 297 episodes of that show I mean that is just, just watch the first one and the last one <laughs> yeah basically yeah that is staggering. <laughs> so yeah, I wonder if they're all on Britbox now. I mean, that they probably are actually. They're probably all on there. 
I would have um, thought they are. Yeah, they must I know some of them are. are. I'll have to look that up and see if all 297 are on. Wow, good good stuff. Uh, for my for my last one, I am going to go for not a conventional. Okay, well, right. I'm going to go for I'm Alan Partridge with Steve Coogan. Now, now everybody knows Alan Partridge pretty much, and he's still going. Obviously, you know, he's just been on. He's just had another series of this time, which is the the one show sort of piss take chat show, but. I'm Alan Partridge is, I mean, amongst Partridge fans, it is still considered, I think, the peak of Partridge on screen. Oh, it's definitely, it's definitely the peak. Without question. I'm in about two or three Partridge Facebook groups, which is just memes. And I mean, honestly, I I spend more time on that, I think, than I do with my family, to be honest. (laughs) It's every day I will see something on there. Um, And it's like... The, but all of the gags that are quoted are usually from Arn Alan Partridge, nine times out of ten. It's not from the f- Alpha Pap of the film. It's not from this time. It's not from Knowing Me, Knowing You even, which is the original chat show. But I'm Alan Partridge was, was him in a sitcom form. And the thing with Alan Partridge is that he's always been a comedy character who has moved around different styles of comedy, different... He's done like... There's been fake documentaries. There's been a podcast. There's been a movie... It's it's all been it, the, the brilliance of what Steve Coogan and then later Neil and Rob Gibbons who took the character from Mid Morning Matters, which was the uh, YouTube clips of his radio show onwards. The brilliance is that they've changed the format of Alan, so he fits in different things, and he's a very elastic character in that way. And arguably, I think he's become more sophisticated of a, as a character in the last ten, fifteen years. But. I'm Alan Partridge, in terms of sitcom, I think he's one of the best. It's two series, but they're both different in the sense that they put Alan in different situations. The first series is all about him trying to get back into the BBC after he accidentally kills a man live on air. Uh, <laughs> you end up knowing me, knowing you. And then uh, the second series is more about him just sort of accepting that that's never going to happen. And he's got like a, a foreign girlfriend and he's trying to build a house and he's just in various different things. The second series at the time, everyone thought was a bit, wasn't as good, but I actually think it, it's as good as the first series. It's just slightly different in what they do in that they take, they don't take all of the characters from series one. They take one or two and then they put him, it's just slightly different, but they're both brilliant. And, the, and what I think it does great is that Alan Partridge is one of those characters who, it, it almost everything that comes out of his mouth is just painful to listen to, yet also hilarious. He he will say the wrong thing at every possible moment, and you just the joy of it is that you never quite know what he's going to come out with next. And 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 I think they really leaned into that in the in this sitcom because it's it, it is very it is very character based. The whole thing is about him and his basically his emotional breakdown as he goes as he stops being a broadcaster. And he's complete. I mean, if there's ever a sitcom that summed up failure in a British man in a sitcom, it is our Alan Partridge, like without shadow of a doubt. But then at the same time, it's almost it's almost a bit like a documentary, even though it's not presented like a documentary. It's almost like there's a camera crew following him around, but it's not at the same time. All, you almost feel like there should be, but there isn't. And I think it is played yeah. conventional in that it's a it's clearly made in a studio in many of the many of the scenes. You've got an audience. You've got a laughter, an audience laughing, but at the same time, it's subversive. I still remember this being the first time I ever heard on a British comedy the "fuck off" said on television without being bleeped or anything. I st- <laughs> and I honestly, Rob, I gasped at the time. I remember going, 
But I couldn't. <laughs> but this was 1997. This was the first series, and he, it's when he tells Phil Cormos to fuck off. And I was like, and even the audience yeah. were like, what? Like you really didn't? And I, I love that because it was it was an example of how it was. It was becoming unafraid. And this was BBC Two, I think it was on at the time. Yeah, it was unafraid. It was unafraid to just do it and go for it. And I think the the, the risks that that show took, and the fact it took a deeply unlikable person in many ways, and made him funny and tragic, and just awful, but yet at the same time likable, is a a real masterclass in how to do it. And I, I think those twelve episodes are just gold, absolute gold. Yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd agree, I'd agree with you a hundred percent there. I think that it's like he's one of the most fascinating and enduring characters because of that ability to sort of you know to to jump genre yeah. basically uh, and you know like the the knowing me knowing you um, uh-huh. that's fantastic uh-huh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic it's a fantastic format because it's you know that in itself is a is a you know it's a, we're talking about a parody you know parody chat show mm. so everything you know that's that's presented as real world which I think is why some people they they can't quite get to grips with uh, with this time, which I'm not one of them. I, I yeah, love this same. Time. But I think that yeah, the uh, I'm Alan Partridge. It, it's it's brilliant, and I think it's I think in world is it is it referred to as a documentary? I think there's actually some. I think at the time there were some press releases that did describe it as being a mockumentary. Yeah, but it's not. That's the thing. There's no. Well, no. I mean, it's yeah. It's not. It's not. I mean, this is this is what's fascinating about it because I think there is a sort of a almost like a proto office yeah, element definitely. to it because it because it's a sitcom and it's got audience laughter and none of the characters ever acknowledge the fact that there is a camera watching mm. him. So so it, so in that sense, it's not a documentary. Uh, you know, it's not a mockumentary. But it's shot as if it yeah. were a mockumentary, yeah. and and it follows him as if it were a mockumentary. And so, for the you know for the, the confines of a sitcom, it does feel different, and it, it it doesn't explicitly say this is not a sitcom in the way that The Office does. But it, there's something about it, and at the time, maybe we you know maybe we didn't necessarily know what that mm. was because we didn't have The Office to compare it to. But it it really, I think it's sort of. And this is not this is not to do a, do it a disservice, but I think it almost does a lot of firsts. Yeah, yeah, without, yeah. but not quite. So so it's almost a mockumentary, yeah. but not quite. And yeah, and Alan is. I mean, Alan is is basically David Brent meets Basil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, you know, and and I mean, we we have talked about this. I think in previous, but I, but I'll say it again because why not? I think that. Characters like like Basil and even characters like David Brent, they work, or sometimes they work best when the people they're dealing with are awful. Yeah. So they are just people that can't cope with the awfulness of other people, and I think Alan has a little bit of that, which is which is mm. great. You know, you're not very sympathetic towards Alan. He is basically a git. <laughs> but there are those few moments where you kind of like, oh, yes, Alan's telling this person to go fuck themselves yeah. and this person's really annoying yeah that's the joy of it in that and, and i think they they as as time's gone on he's become more sympathetic in many ways as as coogan has aged into the character the character in some ways has yes. has softened in a way he's that he, he's that he's most caustic at points in this and he's most like bitter and just hates the world and hates what's happened to him and feels yes. it's so unfair 
and and you get but the comedy from it is just glorious and it and it, I think oh it's fantastic I think if you did a third series of this now which is in theory could be done you know there's no reason why they couldn't do another series oh, yeah. of this it 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 wouldn't it would be different in that Alan's a different character Coogan's a different performer now with the character I almost am, I would almost be fascinated to see it I'd always I almost love to see a third series shot in the same way. Maybe not with the laughter track because that's become a bit passe now in many ways. But 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 even without that, I'd love to see it again done. Maybe actually even with the laughter track. Actually, now I've said that, maybe I would want to see that and see if it worked. See if you could do it now and actually see if it had the same effect. But I think uh, it, it's not necessary though because you're doing they're doing different things with Alan. They're putting him in different situations, which make him the point of him is that he's trying to stay hip. He's trying to stay cool. He's trying to stay in with it, you know, like he's doing a podcast. And he's doing that's part of the point of him. But I just think that even though I I do think the stuff that's as good as I'm Alan Partridge later, I do genuinely think that. I think a lot of the movie Alpha Papa is just gold as well. Uh, this is really, really, really good. And I've I, again, I know the scripts inside out in my head. I watched it so much. I loved it when I was a teenager. When I first saw it, and that this was this was what really got got me into. Then I went and bought the VHS of the Knowing Me, Knowing You, and then I <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed them. But this this was it for me. And ever since, I've been a massive Partridge fan, and I will always be a massive Partridge fan. So yeah, I I, I love it, absolutely love it. And uh, I mean, wow, we have gone long on this, Rob, haven't we? This is like two plus hours. <laughs> Good yeah. grief! Yeah. Well, if you if you cut out all the, all of my self-indulgent talking about my career though we can probably trim it down to about 90 minutes so. not at all not at all i think people will have uh will have enjoyed us uh enjoyed us chewing this over because it's there's loads to talk about and i think we've gone into some real depth about the things we love and talked about various different sitcoms and and things that we'll come back to you know we put a pin in a lot of these topics because we, we've we've got loads we can come yeah. back to and, and delve into which is really fantastic so i've loved this i think this has been a great chat yes yeah, i've i've loved it i mean it's it's like two two hours or whatever it is now and it's like but i, I feel like we've barely yeah. scratched the surface amazing it's like i could easily go another two hours but yeah i'm i'm ho- hopefully hopefully people will listen to this and and all these points that we've kind of said okay we're going to come back to that we're going to do an episode on this hopefully this is a little bit of a you know a taster yeah. might might interest people because i'm i'm really excited about the conversations yeah. we're going to have like i'm really excited to sit down and talk with you about well about alan partridge mm. in greater detail about one foot in yeah. the grave about george and mildred yeah. i'm really yeah. excited about having those conversations yeah. and, and going back and watching some of this stuff again because some of it i haven't seen in years so it's going to be and now thanks to things like BritBox well, yeah. as well we, a lot of it's there to watch on streaming as well which helps everything's around you know you don't have to you don't have to keep you know your eyes open for those those repeats and stuff and it is kind of nice it's it's nice giving yourself a reason to go and yeah. watch something because some of these shows you know you watch them so much when you're younger and you you know you do watch them in repeats and they become so ingrained that you then don't mm. watch them mm. it's like kind of like oh this is my absolute favorite sitcom of all time and i've not watched it for 15 yeah. years and it's that it's it's so easy to kind of like slip slip out of that so again i'm really looking forward to watching you know yeah watching some only fools and horses and some man about the house yeah. that kind of stuff I'm, I'm really looking forward as, as we go yeah. forward as we go forward in this comedy yes. journey it's gonna it's gonna be great and to be fair if we can find alexis sales paris online we can find anything you know so we'll god i wish we hadn't to be honest <laughs> We good, had a good discussion about it, though. You know that was that was better than the show itself. We did. I really enjoyed. 
I enjoyed. I'll have another discussion about it. In yeah, yeah, years. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. One every two decades. <laughs> that's, that's more enough. than enough. Yeah. Um, well, guys, thank you for li- if you're still with us after two plus hours. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our rambling through things. I hope it's made you want to go off and watch certain bits and bobs. Um, we'll be back for a more conventional episode um, soon, talking about one show in particular. Um, but uh, thank you for joining us for this. Rob, until next time, where can people find you find out a bit more about what you're up to? Uh, best place to look for me at the moment is on Twitter at 4Ducks. Uh, and that usually I'll be linking whatever I'm involved with. I link it out there. I'll tweet it out there. Uh, but also, if you just keep a look on the We Made This website, because I'm getting involved in a few more bits and pieces there, doing a couple of the Real Talk podcasts on upcoming movies. So out and about, yeah. you'll find me or I'll and find some, you. And uh, some podcast 616 talking about Marvel as well, because that's been that's quite fun. Oh, I almost forgot. Yeah, that's very yeah. exciting. I'm really looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can find me um, on the network at WMT underscore network um, and all the different shows I'm popping up on. And me personally, I'm quite often on Twitter more than anything else as well at AJ Black Writer. Um, and you can find links to everything else there. So, yeah, thanks again for listening and joining us for another episode. We are part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Please subscribe to You Have Been Watching and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will help massively. Uh, and if you do want to help our network, please consider supporting us on Patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash we made this. British comedy and sitcom is not all we're discussing on the network, so I'll give you a little taste of what else you might have missed in a minute. But until next time, uh, you have been listening to Tony Black and Robert Turnbull. And we're off to watch some comedy on Rob's 11 inch black and white telly. See you next time. Elsewhere on We Made This. Frame to frame. Being John Malkovich, I think, is probably the most original film I will ever see because I had absolutely no idea what was going to come next. Then when it did come, I was like, okay, right, that makes sense. Well, it makes sense being a loaded term <laughs> in the context of this film. Well, yeah, yeah. In, in any other film, it'd be ridiculous. Like, oh, what, we're suddenly going through uh, John Malkovich's subconscious whilst one person's trying to shoot another. Like, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but... It makes sense within the context of the film. I pretty much agree with with everything that you were saying about it being the exploitation of celebrity. That was my my sort of big takeaway. And the thing I was I was thinking, oh yes, I'll be able to say this on the podcast and it will sound smart, was that they get their fifteen minutes of fame. But oh, so sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, this is the beauty of us not talking about ahead of time, right? Yeah, yeah, is it? Pick a disc. Was that kind of your entry into music as well? So did you learn a lot about music because of your pet, what your parents' record collection was then? Or? Oh, of course. They were they were the first DJs in my life. <laughs> I mean, you know, what they listened to was gospel to me. And then I started learning my own music through listening to albums on, on the radio, listening to stuff uh, that my friends would dub, a cassette copy. Oh, you got to hear this album. And they would dub a couple songs and make mixtapes. And then passing mixtapes around between friends to kind of introduce each other to new bands. But the bands that I listened to in my youngest years, my childhood, are the ones that I still look back at with just some... Because they helped really shape and form who I am as a music fan. Rarely Going, an animated Star Trek podcast. They've gone through that script and went, yep. 
that's fine. And that's been approved by, you know, the executive producers, the writing room. There's a lot of people that have had to go through this episode before it's got to air. And, you know, the fact that they can have something like that where it can be a little bit self-critical of the thing is 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 good. You know, Star Trek can often be classed as taking itself a little bit too seriously. Um, and I think something like that, you know, the fact that people go, yeah, you know what, that, that's fair point, fair point. And they're probably, you know, people are aware of the criticism, the positive things, you know, people are, are basing Star Trek around, around a lot of some of these decisions and, and leaning into that. So I think that, you know, it shows that the writers are, are self-aware, certainly. And, you know, that, that also extends out with the, the Lower Decks kind of writing room too. Yeah, fair. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network.